Hey everyone, I wanted to give a quick reminder that in the month of June, you can become a CFB Winning Edge annual Tier 1 Patreon supporter and receive Tier 2 access for the 2022 college football season. You have to sign up as an annual member, and this offer is only available in June, but you'll get 16% off and access to our 2022 FBS team profiles, our 2022 FBS returning production database, and much more. Visit patreon.com slash Edge to learn more and to sign up. Welcome back, everybody. It's CFP Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by Nicholas E. Now, the arm proprietor of CFP Winning Edge. Follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. And today we are diving into team previews. It is time. We are here. We are ready to go. We're uh, going to start from the bottom and work our way to the top. So, we are starting at 131 to 121 today. So we are talking about some bottom feeders, but we are going to make it interesting. We're going to make it fun. We got, uh, we're going to talk about DK win totals. We're going to talk about the upside and downside of these teams and all that good stuff. But before we dive into any of that, y'all know I am very, very excited because my Longhorns landed Arch Manning, uh, the uh, quarterback recruit, Thought about Georgia, thought about Alabama for a little bit, visited Ole Miss, came to Texas a couple times, but committed to Texas. I am ecstatic. I've been getting all kinds of text messages. And Xavier, don't you dare roll your eyes at me. Uh, Nick, I'm excited about Arch Manning. Uh, let, let's talk about that real quick. We'll get it out of the way fast so I can, you know, just be heard and then we'll move on to the <laughs> team preview. So, what do you think about Arch Manning to Texas? So I'm not a big recruiting guy, uh, but obviously, um, you know, can access his player page on 247 Sports and all the other sites. And uh, I think most of the time when you have a perfect rating, that's that's usually pretty good uh, when you are, you know, uh, related to uh, one of the best quarterbacks of all time and a multi Super Bowl winner. Uh, also probably pretty good. So I think chances are. You know, I haven't I haven't dug into uh, you know the the huddle highlights or or the tape or anything, but I'm going to say he's probably a, a pretty good player. So, congrats, Xavier. Uh, you know, uh, I want to put on your parade so bad. Don't I really you do. Dare? Don't I'm not you going dare? To. I'm not, I'm not come going. Because ultimately, come on, let's go. Ultimately, let's you stopped him from going to Tennessee. So, I mean, that's always a, a silver lining. So, um. No, I'm not going to poop on your parade. I love Arch. I, I think that it's a great gift for you guys. Um, my theory is he'll be transferring to Georgia within two years because Quinn Ewers has that quarterback position locked up. But, uh, hey, that's not that's neither here nor there. You know, uh, Arch Manning is a longhorn. Before <laughs> you came in here, uh, I, I said I said to Nick, look, if Quinn Ewers is great, there is a possibility that he never plays a snap for Texas. Just like Quinn Ewers, you know, barely played for. Did he even have a snap for Ohio State yeah, last year? I don't so uh, yeah. he handed off a couple of times. Nice See, yeah, so we got, got on the him. field a couple of times, but yeah. Um, so just that that's the same scenario where Arch, you know, uh, could not play if Quinn Ewers is great. So uh, I, I understand all of that and that's fine. But you know what? 
if, if that's the scenario that plays out, I'm okay with it because it means Quinn Ewers is great. Either way, Texas gets a really good QB. So uh, unless they both fail, which you know has been known to happen so hard. in Texas, so it'd be, it'd be it, that would be hard to take. But uh, I am super excited today. But now Last that thing. we, what's up? Last thing, and I just and this is just a quick aside for all SEC fans. Shut up about him dodging the SEC. He may be Texas playing is in going it, to the SEC. Yes, he may be playing in in three years in 2024. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like shut up. I they'll saw be going, they'll kind be going of a to rough, the SEC in 2024. I saw kind of a rough Photoshop of him in a Texas jersey and it had an SEC patch on it. Yeah, so. see? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. so SEC fans, stop with the whole, he's dodging a bullet. Yeah, the bullet's coming not. in a couple of years. Like he, yeah. He's not dumb. Yeah, he knows I, it's coming off, off the horizon. I know it's not supposed to be till 2026, but Texas and, and Oklahoma are both going to pay the fine, the $75 yes. million right. per season. They're going to pay $150 million bucks to move to the SEC in right. 2024. Like, that's been the plan since the oh, beginning. Right. Everyone knows it. So, uh, But anyway, let's get into these teams. We're starting at the very bottom, Nick, at 131. And, you know, it's hard to say that any one team – is the worst in the country, but somebody's got to be there. Uh, right now, 131, we have UConn uh, just doing a 2021 recap. They lost 45 zip to Fresno State in week zero, followed that up with a 38 28 loss to Holy Cross. And that was the end of the Randy Edsel era. And um, Mora inherits a team that went one in 11 last season. Uh, DK's win total has them at two and a half. Uh, they're favored to win one from us. We have them town edges in two, but we do have them for three wins, which would be over the two and a half projection. So, uh, Nick, I mean, is this the worst team in the country? They got, uh, a, you know, got a new head coach. What are the goals for a team that, you know, is ranked in a lot of polls dead last and is kind of known as a joke? Among college football, obviously, UConn, a very big basketball school, but, you know, not a lot of love put into this uh, football program here. So what do we think about UConn in 2022? So UConn's a, a fairly new uh, number 131 ranked team. We did an update early this week. So I believe it was uh, Monday what was that, June 20th, um, that we finally were able to go through and get our projections done in our uh, statistical uh, projections database, which will be available to our Patreon supporters uh, early in July because got to get a lot of the uh, player stats and all that stuff done. But we were able to do a lot of the um, – or basically everything that we needed to do for team history and coach history, including – Offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, all that good stuff. So UConn was at 128, 129, something like that. But because of the makeup of their new coaching staff, uh, they didn't really get a boost that a couple of the other teams that we'll talk about here in a moment who are kind of in that competition to be number 131 uh, got because we – changed it to where um, we used to use five years of coaching data from head coaches and both coordinators. We changed that to three years. And Jim Mora hasn't been, you know, involved in college football the last three years. So weren't able to incorporate any of his uh, success or, or what have you from UCLA. They brought in an offensive coordinator from the FCS level, who's a head coach, former play caller uh, at Maine, where uh, he helped 
uh, as a play caller, lead them to the FCS semifinals. Um, you know, had a, a decent uh, one loss record as a head coach at, at Maine the last three years, but because we revamped our statistical projection database to only include uh, games against FBS opponents. And if it's an FCS team, you know, didn't want to just use one game where they most likely got, you know, blown out or something like that, even though Maine did beat UMass. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But um, anyway, because of that, head coach and offensive coordinator didn't get, you know, accounted for in this update. Uh, Lou Spanos was retained as defensive coordinator. So he was there at UConn the last three years. They also didn't play in 2020. So it, it's kind of a weird thing where I'm actually fairly excited about Jim Mora at UConn. I feel like I'm uh, kind of have an optimistic view of a lot of these teams and our projections that we'll talk about are, are pretty high, you know, relative to what you might think for teams ranked in the 130s, 120s. Uh, but I think Jim Mora's got, you know, pretty good track record. It's going to have a lot of opportunity at UConn. They are investing in football. Uh, you asked, what does success look like? I think in year one, you know, probably make sure you beat your FCS opponent. So they play Central Connecticut in week two. Uh, and then, you know, win a couple of other games, have a chance to get revenge against UMass. Uh, they play FIU, who uh, who we won't talk about today, who, but, you know, is kind of in the same ballpark of teams. They've got some very difficult opponents on the schedule. Uh, but overall, I think there are some opportunities for UConn to, to show some real promise. They do have a couple of areas of their uh, roster that are, you know, have some some kind of exciting players. I think the receivers in particular, uh, Keelan Marion, last year leading receiver, showed some real promise. Uh, they also bring back um, – uh, Cameron Ross, who was the leading receiver receiver in 2019, uh, was you know as a you know, freshman Amer- all American type player in 2019, but of course didn't play in 2020 and then got hurt last year. Both of those guys are back. They added some talent through the transfer portal, both at quarterback and at receiver. They bring back running back Nathan Carter. They brought you know four transfers in on the offensive line and uh, more inherited some uh, you know talent there as well. Plus, the linebacker group is is among probably the best linebacker groups uh, of any team in this you know rankings range. They did lose the only drafted player that we'll talk about today in Travis Jones. They also lost their interception leader, Jeremy Lucien, to uh, Vanderbilt as a transfer. But overall, you know, I think this roster is actually, despite you know a roster strength rating of one twenty five overall. They they've got some bits and pieces that are that are really promising. Strength of schedule ranks 80th, so you know fairly fairly difficult games like Michigan, even Syracuse, uh, NC State, Fresno State, Utah State. Those are all teams uh, that are going to give them trouble in the first half of the year. Michigan and Utah State, defending conference champions, but there you know there are some winnable games on this schedule, so. We project 2.96 wins, a 3-9 and nine final record uh, projection. And, you know, you, you mentioned the DraftKings win total. We would be over that 2.5. So I uh, did go this year and, and go team by team and look up the odds. 
over two and a half would be plus 120. So if you risk $100, you'd win 120. Officially, we're on the over two and a half. We're going to be on the over a lot in this show. But uh, yeah, it's it's going back to that that first question. Are they the worst team in college football? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's fair. They weren't until we did this um, updated projections that kind of do a little weird stuff because of the the uh, head coach and offensive coordinator hire that they've got. But you know, they're they're there in our rankings right now. But I wouldn't be shocked at all if at the end of the year, this is a, a much improved team. I'm not sure the record's going to be much much better than 111, 111. But I do think that that those three wins are. Uh, you know, that, that's a, uh, an appropriate goal, I think, for year one. Show some progress, build a foundation for the future. Xavier, what do you think of UConn? Because, you know, it's tough to rank anyone last here. Uh, UConn does have the track record in history, though, to be in this ranking. Uh, you know, two and a half wins is tough. I don't think, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, we don't have anyone below three wins, right? It's, you know, um, in terms of real wins, not like 2.96. Like, uh, is there anyone on the list that we have below three? Uh, not in this group, no. And and part of that is we are at the far end of the spectrum. Uh, we're, we're so extreme. And it's really, really difficult because the way we get our projected win totals, if, if you've never listened to us before, uh, we take individual games. We have projected point spreads for every game. And then you can calculate a projected win percentage from that. So using UConn as an example, we have them as a nearly an 18-point underdog against Utah State in week one. We project that UConn would win that game 15% of the time based on that projected point spread. So that game is worth 0.15 wins. They're 85% uh, likely to beat Central Connecticut, FCS opponent, in week two. So that game is worth 0.85 wins. Go through the schedule, add them all up, and it's you know 2.96 wins. Uh, with a team like... UConn at, at this end of the spectrum, there's there's an argument to be made that that maybe our percentages should be a little bit lower. Um, but yeah, the, the way we calculate it right now, there's not a, you know, in my opinion, this is obviously the worst team in college football, or you know, this is a team that might be lucky right. to win a game. It seems to me, even in this part of the uh, rankings, it, it, you know, this part of the preseason that all of these teams have a chance to win two, three games. And, and yeah, our projections kind of reflect that. Yeah. So Xavier, I mean, it, it's tough to not want to take the over on anyone at two and a half games. Right. But UConn is brutal. They've been brutal, um, you know, but it's kind of, there's nowhere to go, but up. Right. So what do you think of UConn for 2022? Yeah. And that's a ton of ways. I was just doing a little deep dive on UConn you know, in, pre in preparation. And that university is in shambles as far as their athletic program is concerned. They ran at a, at a uh, university high $42.3 million deficit last year. Um, and that's in all of athletics. Um, and, you know, football obviously is a major piece of that. Football is a very expensive sport to run. And if you're not good at it, then nobody's going to show up, right? right. Uh, on top of that, Unlike a lot of other teams, they have decided to go independent instead of going into bigger conferences uh, like some of their other counterparts did when they moved to the AAC. They decided to go to the Big East. Um, and then 
obviously now their football team is independent because the Big East doesn't have football. So, you know, they, they've made some some pretty poor decisions in the past that have led to the situation that they're at now. But like, as Nick alluded to, they're kind of trying to turn the direction, right? Uh, at the end of the day, the, the head coach hire, rather while expensive, is obviously a change in the right direction and, and a change right. that if UConn football wants to be relevant again or relevant at all, they're going to need to make, right? You know, and part of the preparation, I, obviously I'm the recruiting junkie, I feel like, on this podcast. Um, I, I definitely went and looked for UConn's recruiting in the 2023, and I couldn't find it. Like, I could not <laughs> find it at all. All I found was in the last day or two, they were able to sign a, a, a two-star dual threat quarterback. Like, I haven't been – I was – it was hard to find any pulse as far as they were as recruiting for 2023 is concerned. Uh, but for 2022, the, the class that just came in, uh, 18 commits, uh, they finished fourth – uh, or excuse me, fifth in, out of all independents, uh, finishing behind New Mexico State, but in front of UMass and Army. Uh, when you talk about their schedule, as Nick alluded to, this is gonna, I mean, when you're independent, you can kind of get away with, you know, throwing some softies in there, right? Like at the yeah. end of the day, they need wins more than, you know, maybe any other, I won't say any other program on this list, but when you look at how much of a deficit they're running at and how little fandom they have for their programs in general uh you know obviously people think of UConn as a basketball school already but to be perfectly honest with you when I looked into it women's basketball is the only thing keeping them afloat uh at the current moment like <laughs> that, that's 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 pretty low um so like right now you really think you know they, they could use some you know I, just being competitive at this point like I, I don't know if I'm gonna go the over with their win total but they should be more competitive in some of these games. I think that will lend itself to a little bit more fanfare for them this year. Uh, they get Syracuse at home. That'll be fun. That'll give a little bit, that'll give some notoriety. Boston College is at home as well. Um, Liberty's at home. So you should, I mean, you'll get some more, some fun games. If, if that makes sense. Um, you do have to go play Michigan and North Carolina state back to back on the road. Obviously those are going to be the games where if you're a UConn fan, you turn off the television in the first quarter, but Hey, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about teams at this point, like you said, you can only go anywhere but up at this point. So uh, I love the hire. I, I love the, the desire to be a better football program. Uh, because universities know that if your football program is actually good, it's the biggest moneymaker you'll have. Uh, so I, I appreciate them trying to turn a corner. Um, and I want to see this from all the teams on this list. Like, hey, let's turn a corner. Yeah. We don't always have to be in the basement. Let's get out of there. Because a lot of these teams, we've been doing this podcast for, what, almost four years now? A lot of these teams have been in this basement this entire time. Yeah, I mean, this is a familiar list. Yeah, uh, yeah. For like, sure. We've seen you guys before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've seen you before. Uh, speaking of which, number one thirty, New Mexico. They started two and zero in twenty twenty one, but QB injuries took their toll, and the Lobos limped to a three and nine finish, one and seven in conference. Bennett Gonzalez and Rocky Long uh, put together a solid defense, but the O ranked one thirty in twenty twenty one. Their DK win total also two and a half. Uh, we only give them talent edges in one game, but we do have them once again as a three and nine team which would be over the two and a half win total. Um, New Mexico ranked, this is interesting, Nick. I'm surprised. Uh, th this even surprised me. Ranked 129th or 130th in each of our five offensive categories in 2021. So you got to get better on the offensive side of the ball to be anything. Solid defense is great, but you know if you're three and out every time, your defense is going to get worn out. So how ca can they improve? Uh, this offense. I mean, how can they not improve? But, you know, you say that and sometimes it just doesn't. But uh, what does New Mexico have to do to get better here? Well, first and foremost, they need a little better luck at the quarterback position. The you know injuries have, have hit 
that position really, really hard the last couple of years. In 2020, they you know finished the season relatively strong, but we're down to what their fourth string quarterback starting the the last game or two, and and they just had you know going through guys every week it seemed. Last year they brought in Terry Wilson. He gave the unit kind of a, a spark. They performed pretty well first couple of games of the year uh, and then started to, you know, just basically crumble. And Wilson was banged up. They, again, had to start multiple quarterbacks. And, you know, a similar uh, similar thing we'll talk about at least for the, the first half of the teams uh, this week is, you know, they're, they're trying to inject something into the quarterback position. For UConn, they brought in uh, Taquan Robertson, the transfer from Penn State. Uh at New Mexico, you know, Terry Wilson's out of eligibility. They have turned to, it looks like, Miles Kendrick, who was a part-time starter at Kansas, a uh, mobile guy, you know, similar to Terry Wilson in, in skill set, but he's, you know, he's a small guy, quick, um, might be able to, to uh, hurt teams on the ground. And that's something that it looked like, you know, New Mexico tried to lean into the second half of last year where they started to, um, kind of fold in more triple option, uh, you know, concepts into the offense. They really tried to lean into, hey, we've got a, a decent um, group of running backs. We've got uh, some skill position players that can do some interesting things. I mean, Luke Wysong's a, a local product at wide receiver who led the team in targets last year and ended up with, you know, 200 something uh, receiving yards and over a hundred rushing yards. So they were trying to get guys, you know, trying to find creative ways to uh, give that offense a spark, especially after they had lost arguably their best player in, in Terry Wilson. Um, they are not only going to have to replace him, they're going to have to replace Aaron Dumas, who kind of emerged as a freshman, uh, you know, pretty solid freshman running back. They lost, their uh, top-graded offensive lineman, Cade Briggs. Uh, Dumas transferred to Washington. Briggs transferred to Texas Tech. So, you know, will Miles Kendrick be the answer? They do still bring back Wysong. They've got uh, kind of an interesting uh, tight end in Trace Bruckler, who had three touchdowns last year. He's coming back. But they're, they're going to have to, I think, get – uh, creative. They're probably going to be one of the slower pace teams again in uh, 2022, and, and they're probably going to lean heavy on the run game. The you know biggest thing that's going to help keep New Mexico out of the basement. I mean, they they do I think have some upward mobility. They're not destined to be you know 130 by the end of the year or dead last in the Mountain West because they do still have, of course, Danny Gonzalez as head coach, Rocky Long. Uh, as defensive coordinator, two of the better defensive-minded coaches, certainly in the Mountain West, maybe in college football in general. I mean, Rocky Long's a, a, about as respected as it comes as far as a defensive coach. So they made some real progress last year. They improved to you know double digits in our uh, team performance ratings. They moved all the way to 82nd after being you know deep in the 100s in 2020. They're still working with a, a roster that ranks 130th overall in roster strength. But because they played a relatively slow pace, because they've got guys like Jared Reed, who's uh, you know all-conference type safety, um, Ronald Wilson, Dante Martin in the back end of that defense, a couple of uh, you know, 
productive linebackers as well, led by Ray uh, Letuele. And some, you know, interesting transfers, not as many uh, in, you know, just raw numbers as, as a team like UConn or, or a couple other uh, that we'll be talking about later, New Mexico State, UMass. But New Mexico is, has added to um, its talent in, in spots. Gordian Porter at, at Arizona State is going to be an interesting piece at wide receiver. Uh, Tyler Kiene, transfer from UCLA, local product, former four-star um, defensive end. And Hunter Sellers, who's transferring from Pitt. Both of those guys might have an opportunity for you know significant snaps, and if New Mexico can uh, you know keep games close, have a chance to win in the fourth quarter, there's there's I think the chance to at the very least repeat the three and nine record that they had last year. That is what we uh, project as their their final record. But you know if this defense takes even another step forward. There's there's an outside shot that they could get up, you know, four or five wins and maybe even, you know, scare some teams and, and uh, inch toward bowl eligibility. I, I don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility. Xavier, what do you think? Got to get better on offense. The defense Absolutely. is the strength of this team, but, you know, you're not going anywhere if you can't put points up on the board. I couldn't agree more. But, I mean, you have a solid foundation. I'll say that much, right? Like, if you can stop somebody, at the very least, you can try to keep games as tight as possible. Uh, when you look at their schedule last year, that, that was a reoccurring theme for them. They just, like you said, they just couldn't put points on the board, right? Like, even in blowouts, they had the scores, the numbers that they're giving up are astronomical. Like, they never had a game where a team scored 40. They never had a team where a game where a team scored 50. Like, they're not getting absolutely blown out the water. Even against teams like Texas A&M, right, where, yes, they lost 34 to nothing, but – you take some silver linings if your defense can hold an SEC pro- program under 50 in a non-conference game. Like, you you take yeah. some of the, the silver linings in that. So, you're absolutely right. This is a defense that if it can replicate what it did last year and just get a pulse offensively, they are going to be really close to a bowl game, right? Like, you look at some of the games. You look at UTEP last year. They lost 20-13. to 13. You really feel like they had a chance there. UNLV last year, 31-17. They may have had a chance there. If you just take those two games and flip them because they have an offense, they're already at five wins, Right. Uh, so I really think that you look at a team here that has an opportunity this year. I want, you know, to, to piggyback off of what Nick said, maybe not to surprise a lot of people, but, you know, I think they have a chance to get to the six wins. Uh, you know, they start with Maine. They have a pretty daunting non-conference schedule. Um, outside of Maine, they play LSU this year, which is going to be pretty tough. Uh, obviously, you have to and they're playing at LSU. Uh, so that, that that's, that's going to be a tough ball game. But I do think that this is a team that defensively can hang its hat there and is really just going to be focused on offense. And the other piece to that is when you really know one side of the ball is like locked tight, that's all they're going to be focusing on in spring and fall. Like you're going to be hoping that that offense gets clicking, that you get, you know, everything that you need to get into. And it just makes it easier on some of the coaching staff. Like, obviously I'm not saying the defensive coaches are are lounging around and taking naps because they know the defense is just going to be that good. (laughs) But like when you know going into the year, we've got a defense that can play in this league. All right, cool. Offense. We're going to be focusing on you, hyper-focused on you all year uh, in preparation for the season. And sometimes that lends itself to being better come the next year. You look at their recruiting last year; it was pretty good, actually. I'll be honest with you; I, I didn't expect to see this many three stars. I'll be completely. Danny Gonzalez, good job. Yeah, yeah. You know they they finished with a uh, they finished 99 as far as composite ranking is concerned. Uh, they finished 114th in the country, but once again, it's New Mexico. Like you don't expect them to finish, you know, super high on this list. And they were able to bring in some pretty solid recruits. I mean, you're able to bring in a guy from UCLA, Kansas, Arizona State, Pitt. That's you know 
that's amazing for, for Danny Gonzalez. I think, you know, it's starting to really, you know, show itself as far as, you know, what he can do going forward. And like you said, like Nick said, if they can get to a bowl game and get some traction, I believe there's an opportunity out there for New Mexico to really start making themselves, uh, making some noise, excuse me, in the Mountain West Conference. Uh, moving over to 129 is Navy, who they're always tough to prep for. Uh, they upset UCF. They beat Tulsa and Army, but they also lost to Houston, SMU, Cincinnati, and ECU, all by a single possession. So, like, they can't be 129, it seems like. Their DK Winthold is four and a half. This is one team we have them projected under. We got them at three and nine, so a game and a half under here. Um, but they feel underrated because they play in so many close games, but they play in so many close games because of their system. So it, it's, it, it makes it difficult to know what to expect from Navy on a year-to-year -year basis. Sometimes they're going to surprise you and make a bowl and upset some teams and be good. Sometimes they're going to be three and nine. So, Nick, what do you see with Navy in 2022? How can they improve and turn these slight losses into slight wins? Yeah, I'm I'm worried that we have Navy as low as we do. I, I was pretty low. You know, my opinion of, of Navy last year, coming into last year, was that they had an opportunity to be deservedly one of the worst teams in college football because they were bad oftentimes in uh, 2020. They didn't bring back a whole lot to get excited about, and they just they just really didn't look good on paper. And, you know, we do have a history of underrating Navy um, of, you know, we, we struggle like a lot of, you know, analytic based projection systems out there do with teams that run the triple option that, um, you know, are service academies because they don't recruit. We've, we've talked this, you know, we talk about this, make this point every year that Navy's roster is basically filled with two star or unrated players. They just have you know, a couple of advantages that they can recruit uh, far more people per year, far more players per year than your average FBS team. And they run a system that is designed to neutralize that talent disadvantage. So because recruiting ratings are, you know, it, it's the first thing that goes into the formula. And, you know, it's, it's not uh, a huge, huge thing, but it, it, helps us to calculate things like roster strength. Uh, and if a team like Navy that doesn't, you know, that, that turns over its roster um, pretty quickly year to year because they don't redshirt, they don't bring in transfers, uh, you only get four years, you're in and out, and they've got such a, a deep, deep roster as far as just raw numbers, um, you might not play until your junior or senior year. And so, you know, they don't have an opportunity to, to build those production points. So consistently, they're putting up roster strength ratings at the very, very extreme low end uh, in FBS. This year, they ranked dead last, 131st overall on offense and on defense in roster strength. They're not going to, you know, play like they're the least talented team in college football. Last year, their team performance ratings, they ranked 97th overall, 103rd on offense, 77th on defense. And that was, you know, a, a pretty decent defensive year for them. The Navy struggled at times defensively the last few years. Um, this year, the projections, very similar. We project them to finish 101st in team performance. Um, they, 
you know, we, we project about the same on offense, 103rd, defense 79, very, very similar. But because that roster strength number is a, a, a big part of those ratings, um, they've slipped down the line. And, and so, you know, we're underrating Navy, I, I can guarantee. And even though last year uh, we had a, a really, really strong record when our projected win total was uh, you know, plus or minus a full win compared to what the odds makers had. We were we were knocking on the door of seventy percent across uh, FBS. However, you know, Navy was one that we missed. We we looked it looked pretty good until they upset Army. You know, it was a a win or lose in that final weekend for us, and and they pulled off that upset. And Navy is capable of pulling off upsets. Um, they bring back two experienced quarterbacks. Um, they don't have very much experience at running back, but they're always, you know, plug and play. It seems they are pretty experienced on the offensive line. They do lose two of their most productive and best defensive players, linebacker Diego Fago, who last I checked, I, I believe he was in an NFL training camp. And then cornerback Michael McMor McMorris was, was definitely a playmaker led with six pass breakups last year. So they, you know, have to replace those guys. Uh, who were all-conference caliber players, um, but they're going to play a lot of probably you know low-scoring games. They're going to try to, uh, similar to New Mexico, keep it close into the fourth quarter and then have a chance to win. They're going to you know run that triple option and and you know counter and midline and and all that stuff to uh, things that people don't you know normal teams don't face on a week in and week out basis that is going to give them a chance to knock off a UCF like they did last year or, you know, play Cincinnati really tough, SMU really tough. Um, so I, I think we're low on Navy, you know, three and nine. They might finish three and nine uh, in part because they have the toughest schedule. Their schedule ranks in uh, 49th in our strength of schedule ratings, which is by far the toughest among group of five teams. So, you know, they, they just might lose to some better teams because their schedule is that tough. Um, but this, this would not um, surprise me at all if Navy is, is, you know, close to bowl eligible just because uh, they have that, you know, that type of offense. And, and you know, they're, they're doing what they've done forever and they're playing a lot of teams that they play every year, but they still struggle uh, teams still struggle to to um, use their talent advantage and and you know beat Navy like you would a, a team that uh, on paper and in, in our projections has um, you know basically the worst roster in, in college football. So they play at a much higher level than that. They play about thirty spots in the rankings better than their talent level. And so you know would it surprise me if at the end of the year we're looking at a Navy team that's inside? Uh, you know, in, in double digits in our final rankings, power rankings would not surprise me at all. So um, we'll see. I, I definitely think we're underrating Navy, um, but they're just a team that, you know, annually we're, we're going to struggle a little bit to properly project.
Yeah, uh, Diego Fago, I forgot, by the way, because I, I was muted. He's uh, in camp with Baltimore. So uh, definitely. Uh, Seems about right. Doesn't yeah, it? I mean, that dude is everywhere. I'm surprised he went undrafted. I, I have no doubt he will make the roster, at least on the practice squad. Uh, Xavier, your, your thoughts on Navy for the season? Because like Nick said, they play 30 spots ahead of where their talent is every single year. So they're just uh, wildly inconsistent. Uh, as you know, a lot of programs are, but you know, being a military academy, uh, they are one of the lower ranked ones here. So, what do you think about Navy? Yeah, no, Navy is like the hardest team to look forward to as far as like their recruiting is concerned. Because I, in some respects, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Like, I, I love Navy. Don't get me wrong, but when I look at their recruiting, I'm like, okay, so you signed 46 people, and you still have like the fourth best you know, recruiting class in independence. I'm like, okay, all right, all right let's scrap everything. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I look at their recruiting, because at the end of the day, like the way Navy operates with that offense and how they're drilled into it, like you said, they can absolutely, they could be going, they could beat Memphis week two. I'm gonna be I mean, you're recruiting for way more than just football. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's, exactly. that's the problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, and it, when, it, when you watch them and when you see them play in person, you understand how good that team can be at times. It's really frustrating because they'll do something like go start off 2-0. They'll beat Delaware at home. They'll beat Memphis at home, right? Then they'll lose to East Carolina away. And you're like, okay. All right. Have no gauge on this team whatsoever. It's really hard to do that with them and Army because when they're really good, they dominate and they finish like 10 and 2. But even when they're really bad, as Nick talked about earlier, they don't lose like by blowouts. It's just rather yeah, like they don't okay, get they stomped. Just, yeah, right. because their offense makes it to where, like I said, I, and when we talk about this all the time on the podcast, when you play a triple option team, the only way you stomp them into the ground is if you cause turnovers. Otherwise, you're just going to have to be perfect offensively because even when their offense doesn't run well, they still take five minutes off the clock. They still take, you know, almost half the game away as far as time of possession. And it makes you as an offense feel like you have to be perfect every time you step on the field. Uh, they're such a hard team to gauge. They are so hard. And, and to be honest with you, like I just would stay away from all types of service, service academies. If I was a betting man, I would just not even touch them, right? Unless I have some affinity for them, whether I went to them or I was a part of the military, there's no way. No way I'm putting a dime on a team that could easily be two and 10 or seven and five to be perfectly honest with you. Right. Like there's very few times I look at their schedule and I go, yeah, they'll lose this game, this game, this game in a row. They could very well decide to rope off four straight when they play, you know, uh, like I said, Delaware, Memphis, East Carolina and air force, they could roll off that force four and then lose every single one after that. And you wouldn't be able to tell me as, an, as many college football fans would how or why all of a sudden it went downhill for them. So like, yeah, just a very, just a very difficult team to, to gauge. And Nick, as far as service academies are concerned, when it comes to your numbers, how hard is it for the numbers to gauge a service academy? Uh, it's very difficult, um, and it's partly because of the recruiting. Uh, it's partly because the teams, you know, the roster turns over um, at a higher level year to year. I mean, there's Navy's never going to be top ten in returning production or something like that. I mean, they're just, you know, they, they guys get four years. That's it. The roster has like 150 players on it. So you might not see the field at all until your junior or senior year. Um, and then those guys come out and, you know, they offensive line, they've got a good history of, of uh, even if nobody has you know ever played before still they're, they're still able, they know the system and put up, you know, 
top five rushing offensive numbers year in and year out at, at that sort of level. So it's it's very, very difficult because the system that we have in place to gauge roster strength, what we call roster strength, um, it starts with recruiting ratings and then we wait for experience and career production and a team like Navy that recruits at a really low level, you know, or just a very different way of going about recruiting. Um, the way we, you know, try to put a number on the strength of their roster, we feel like it does a pretty good job for 125, 127 teams. But three of the ones that we struggle with year in and year out are Army, Navy, and Air Force. And then, you know, occasionally another team here or there that um, kind of fits that mold where they just are able to recruit relatively, you know, unknown, unrecruited, uh, unrated guys and and still be um, productive and competitive and, and all that good stuff. But yeah, I, I agree with what you said about sometimes you just take a team off your list, cross them off and Navy, you know, makes it makes sense uh, if we were to do that. Anytime we talk about Navy and just say, you know, we'll, we'll try our best. We, we try to, uh, you know, we don't want to do something completely different for three or four or five teams. Um, but Navy's just a team that we're always going to struggle a little bit with. It's a better in-season bet, and that's still questionable for them than trying to guess their win total uh, before the season starts for sure. Um, going over to 128, UMass is at 128, and they beat UConn 27 to 13. But they lost to Rhode Island, which cost Walt Bell his job. The Minutemen finished one and eleven. They also lost to Maine, uh, so they uh, bring in uh, Don Brown to revive this program. Uh, their DK win total is at two and a half. Of course, once again, we have them over that, but we have them projected to be four and eight, so well over that uh, two and a half. And you know. Under a new coach here, what is the goal for a team like this? Uh, what does success look like the first year, the third year, the fifth year out for a team that is getting a new head coach and is way down here at the bottom of the list here, Nick? Well, it's, it's very similar to UConn, and, and it's just uh, basically avoid embarrassment. Don't lose to FCS opponents. Uh, pick up another win here or there and build some sort of foundation. Um, you know, UMass, they made an out-of-the-box hire with Walt Bell. He was a guy who had no ties to the Northeast, um, was an offensive coordinator, uh, real young guy. You know, that, that has worked some places. They wanted to tap into his connections in the South. He coached a lot of places in the South, knew a lot of high school coaches in the South. UMass has recruited, you know, Georgia and Florida for a long time, and and uh, has had some success with players from from uh, Southern states. And you know, makes sense. Everybody in in college football recruits Georgia and Florida, and and you know that part of the country. But even though there's not a you know huge amount of talent in New England, in the you know uh, the the Mid Atlantic East Coast. There's still a little bit of, uh, I think, a, a, of advantage to bringing in a guy who's got roots in that area. And UMass and, and UConn are at a bit of a, a disadvantage. They're placed, you know, there's not a whole lot of talent 
around, even though Yukon's got some big cities. I mean, it's not too far from uh, New York, right? Just a few hours down the road. There's just not a whole lot of college football talent in New York. In uh, UMass, you're, you know, there's not a whole lot of college football talent down the road in Boston or, or elsewhere in New England. But they've got prep schools that you know do bring some guys, will produce an occasional four-star player. There just aren't very many of them. And, and UMass probably isn't going to get a four-star player often, if ever. But Don Brown has gotten four-star players out of New England because he's you know, 40 years is his coaching career, whether he's been at Boston College or UConn or Michigan or Arizona, he's been recruiting Massachusetts. He's been recruiting Connecticut and, and you know, the prep schools uh, up in, in that area. And, and so, you know, he has been the head coach at UMass. He's been a very successful head coach at UMass. We know him most as, you know, the, the sort of grizzly, uh, Dr. Blitz, defensive coordinator um, from the last decade or so at, at some pretty big Power Five jobs. But he's had some success as a head coach. He's had success at UMass. Um, part of sort of the, the glory days of UMass football, at least in the last you know 20 years, Don Brown was was a big part of that. So uh, they, they made a different hire. You know, they, they tried something new with Walt Bell. It didn't work. They went back to something that, you know, felt more familiar, it still might not work. UMass is a tough job, um, but he inherits a roster that ranks seventh in overall returning production, top 20 on both offense and defense. They hit the transfer portal hard. I mean, we're we're going to be sharing our uh, sheet, our, our preview series notes with our Patreon supporters, so you can see, I don't know, tons of different information that, that we've compiled here, and it's got a place for uh, transfers, you know, as they relate to uh, you know, quarterback, running back, all the different position groups. And UMass has a name in every box. I mean, they brought in a running back from Indiana. They brought in three wide receivers, including two from Power Five conferences. They brought in a former uh, starter on the offensive line at Rice, a team we'll be talking about here in a little bit, but, you know, FBS starter, longtime starter uh, there. They brought in um, guys from Vanderbilt, Michigan State, Rutgers, Florida State, uh, UConn, Penn State, uh, multiple guys from Rutgers. So, you know, they, they are trying to, one, capitalize on some of the, the talent that they've got uh, back. Ellis Merriweather was an 1,100-yard rusher, um, somebody that, that carried a heavy, heavy workload last year. So, you know, they've got him to build around on offense. They've got Rico Arnold, who... Uh, by the way, went to Clark Central High School in Athens, Georgia, where I used to coach, which, uh, you know, go go Glads. But, uh, you know, he he made some big plays for them last year. Anuma Dieke, 6'5 target. Uh, they, they tried to, you know, let him go up and get it uh, in the red zone or big plays down the field. Didn't connect very often. He was targeted 38 times, had 14 catches. But, you know, perhaps they're able to develop him into a red zone threat. Um, uh, Don Brown is, you know, well-respected as a defensive coach. So I think he's going to inherit a, a veteran unit. Guys like Billy Wooden up front. Uh, Uchene Ezeweke was a, a, you know, decent, uh, led with two and a half sacks, 11 pressures, ranked second on the team last year. Josh Wallace has been productive as a, a corner um, so he's he's got some pieces here or there. 
supplement with uh, some Power 5 transfers, some FCS transfers. And, you know, I think this UMass team, that four-win projection seems crazy to me, honestly. And it's kind of the opposite of what I said with UConn when we folded in the new stat projections. Because, you, you know, Don Brown was a defensive coordinator at Arizona last year. Didn't put up great numbers, but still power five numbers. And then Michigan, the two previous years, which in 2020, that defense wasn't great, but it was still a top 50 defense in, in a lot of ways. And then the 2019 defense was a top 10 defense. So, you know, you, you apply, even though we wait for the most recent year, um, you apply that to, you know, a UMass projection uh, where they've been consistently one of the worst teams in college football, it's going to give them a little bit of bump, not a huge bump, but you know, UMass was, I think, 130th in our last update. Now they're 128. So, you know, there there is an expectation that because Don Brown is is coming in, because he's been, you know, coaching at a pretty high level, um, that's gonna that's gonna help some. Will it help? get this team from one and 11 to four and eight. That seems like a stretch. We were too high on UMass as we talked about last year, uh, pretty often, but I think that, uh, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. I think it's a good hire. It's not the most creative hire, but it, it is kind of a, you know, Hey, we tried something different last time. It didn't work. Let's, let's, you know, build a foundation with somebody who knows, this program who knows this area who knows this fan base um can you know help do a lot of things to build a foundation uh at a place like umass and and seems like they're gonna i think take a step in the right direction i think they at least raise the floor a little bit um will they get to four wins Mm, probably not but i think two wins and maybe even three is possible xavier what do you think of umass this is uh you know, uh, a team that is looking to get better, like all these teams mm-hmm. are, uh, could do it particularly on the de- defensive side with, with Brown here. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they, they are the literal definition of you can't go anywhere but up. I mean, one in eleven. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, you could go down, uh, but you know, you, you, you expect you expect a team that went one in eleven to at the very least go ahead and try to win two games this year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, especially when you've got UConn and Stony Brook on your list, you should be able to go ahead and that should be that should be at least two wins right there. Or, you know, two competitive outfits. Um, but, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think this is a team that has to – and kind of in reverse of what we talked about earlier, uh, they – with New Mexico, defense is what they need to do. Like, they need to be able to put some defense together because there's some games on this list, and I was rather shocked, to be honest, with the 1-11 team. Now, when you look at some games, like against Boston College early in the year, against Eastern Michigan early in the year, their offense was, like, what kept them in it, you know, 28-42, 28-45 – your offense is scoring. Like, your offense is putting up enough numbers. Your defense has just decided they want to be turnstiles for the afternoon. So, like, I, you look at it like that and you go, okay, cool. Like, in reverse, if our defense can now play football at a higher level, maybe, our, you know, we're, we're good enough to win more ball games uh, or at least be more competitive in the outfits in which they are. You also look at what they've done in the recruiting ranking. They rank 95th this year on top of that. And this is what I love to see from, from your smaller programs. Early enrollees, they had six of them. That's impressive. When you're when you when you're able to get kids in there early, they can now have a bigger impact. Uh, you know, they bring in Chase Brewster, who was a three-star quarterback, uh, number two in the state of New Hampshire. Like this is a guy that, that when you get kids in early, 
they have bigger impacts typically. And on the same thing, that means you're now you're getting kids to buy in to what you're doing. Uh, so I love that, um, especially from smaller programs, because that's typically really hard for programs of that size. You see it all the time with your Georgias, your Alabamas, but typically you don't get enrollees until fall for a lot of your smaller programs. So I really like that. Obviously, their overall ranking being what it is in 95. You take that, you know, as a progression. Last year, they were 119 or excuse me, 2021. They were 119, 2022, 95. That's a massive jump, right? That's almost 24 spots. Uh in one year, that's really good for them. Their transfer rating was 52nd, right? They brought in a, a slew of transfers, uh, 17 to be exact. Hell, they have their safety room together now. Their safety room is pretty much like set in stone just from the transfers, if you really think about it, right? Jermaine McMillan and Sammy uh, Faustin coming from Michigan and UCF, respectively. They might be your two safeties starting next year, to be perfectly honest, right? You know, you, you look at, you know, Jalen Mackey. Uh, Tim Baldwin at running back from Indiana. He should hit the ground running. Um, and, and I love that 247 has this, but they even brought in a four-star high school transfer and Tyler Rudolph from, from you know, Penn State. Obviously, he's a three-star transfer, but he was a four-star uh, four high school kid. Um, I love that. Um, obviously, when you're able to bring in guys like this, that's huge for them. And this is where the transfer portal actually works for, you know, everybody who complains about it being just, you know, a uh, wild, wild west. It's also a good thing for some of these smaller programs to be able to bring in some of these guys that just maybe haven't hit the field at some of these bigger programs. Marcus Bradley's another name, uh, the defensive lineman out of Vanderbilt. So that's massive for them as well. They obviously had a clear focus in their uh, transfer portal to go defense. They have, <laughs> you know, I think they have, let me count, one, two, three, four. Four out of 17 guys that they brought in from the transfer portal, offense. Everybody else wow. was on the defensive end. Yeah. So, you know, you essentially, you know, 11 people are on the field at defense. You just brought in, you know, 13 transfers that all could contribute on that side of the field. So Massachusetts should be better this year. Uh, their schedule starting off on the road at Tulane will be a fun matchup. That'll be kind of a barometer game for them at the start of the year um, because Tulane has been a team that's started off hot and then kind of petered out in, in former years. But it is definitely going to be a nice competition for them. Like I said, they get Stony Brook, um, which is their first home game. I just saw that they they have four away games to start off the year. Hmm, you're gonna have to be road warriors to start the year off. Uh, but yeah, you know they, they that can sometimes build a team being on the road that much, especially early. Can yeah, sometimes you know build that team. So yeah, I mean, and we'll be talking about if I'm not mistaken, we'll be talking about their homecoming team, which I think is funny next, uh, which is New Mexico State. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I think you know, I think that's that'll be a fun game. That's you know what we should talk about that game that week. Just because yeah. we, we should talk about UMass, New Mexico State. That's October 29th. There'll probably be massive games going on in other places, but there won't be a, a more hotly contested there, teams that might that be. Was the, uh, that was the the regular season finale last year. I remember yeah. our, our UMass over one and a half was on mm -hmm. the line, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it didn't go our way, unfortunately. <laughs> but one, one thing real quick before we move on to, to New Mexico State that I, I should have mentioned, and Xavier, you did a great job running down all the, the – uh, transfers that they brought in one one area where they didn't bring in a transfer at least yet uh, is quarterback and they they brought mm -hmm. back a true freshman starter who you know Brady Olson uh, flashed some good things strong arm last year uh, they also brought in their uh, you know started at the end of the year Garrett Dezuro a little bit more mobile um, but gives them a couple of options there but a, a name to watch. And maybe it's why they didn't bring a transfer in. Maybe they just couldn't you know, find the right guy. But they do have somebody on the roster, Zamar Wise, who had been a quarterback recruit in high school, converted to wide receiver. Um, but he actually is, you know, one of the, the 
I mean, it was Ellis Meadowweather had 1138 yards, and the next closest guy was DeZero with 138. Uh, Wise had 136. They used him as sort of a you know wildcat short yardage quarterback at times, and there seems to be. Uh, it, it sounded like he got a, a real look at move back to quarterback because uh, their offensive coordinator Steve Kazula um, is has some some uh, success with uh, running quarterbacks in the past. He was an offensive coordinator at Ferris State, very strong Division II program um, in, I think, 2017, 2018. I believe he even has a, a coaching video on you know QB runs and things like that. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see. Uh, Brady Olson you know, might have the highest ceiling, especially as a passer, but guys like DeZero and, and Zamar Wise um, you know, might fit that style getting the, the, the athletic quarterback on the move. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, are they, are they just going to, you know, really lean on Ellis Merriweather and then take shots down the field with Brady Olson, or are they going to try to do, uh, you know, get, get more of the QB run game involved? Are they going to play two quarterbacks? That that's one thing that's going to be interesting to see, especially since I didn't go into the transfer portal, uh, and get a quarterback. Speaking of New Mexico State, coming up here at number 127, they ended on a high note with that 44-27 win over UMass that shattered all of Nick's uh, one-and-a-half tickets on UMass. Uh, but they did just finish 2-10, and ten, uh, which um, got uh, Jerry Kill uh, to be their new head coach this year. Uh, another team that's replacing a coach, the DK win total is Three, we have them uh, going uh, four and eight. So over that three total um, with New Mexico State, it's kind of the same question here as Massachusetts. And anytime you're one of these teams that's on the low end and rebuilding, it's what does success look like when you're going to be ranked in most people's opinions in the bottom five, at least in the bottom 10. And, um, you know, you have a new coach. So what does success look like? for New Mexico State, Nick, uh, in 2022? Uh, similar. You know, they they did get that second win, as you mentioned, against UMass last year. They do play again. Uh, one, one reason I'm not just, like, ready to go back to the drawing board on some of these final record projections, I mean, it, it, I know not all these teams are going to win three and four games. I, I know that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that is making me – you know, not hate it quite as much as, as I might, is they they play each other a lot. I mean, New Mexico State plays UMass again this year, and UMass plays UConn, and, and you know, they all play at least one FCS, uh, or I think this year it's just one FCS opponent. But um, there, there are winnable games on all these teams' schedules, and New Mexico State, though Jerry Kill does not inherit uh, really anything on the offensive side of the ball as far as returning production goes, uh, anywhere near what they inherited UMass, you know, defensively, pretty much the whole defense is, is back. And though, you know, it was a, a unit that really, really struggled, ranked 121st, or excuse me, 125th in defensive team performance last year. Um, there's there's some some talented players. Uh, Caleb Mills, leading tacklers back. Second leading tackler, Chris Ojo, uh, who, you know, had uh, – what 16 tackles for loss last year six sacks i mean very very productive linebacker um there were some players in the secondary who who you know flashed at times uh guys like cyrus dumas and 
um, you know, Torin Union, I, I know, had a, a, a solid uh, debut season as a FCS transfer last year. A lot of JUCO guys um, who were able to get some playing time last year and, and you know, maybe a chance to uh, build on that experience. And though uh, Xavier, you know, Xavier always likes to point out, and, and understandably so, just because you bring back a lot of experience doesn't mean you're going to improve. However, the Jerry Kill hire, uh, and and in some ways, you know, uh, this this is uh, similar to, to what we said about UMass. There's a change in I think philosophy that's going to help. Um, New Mexico State was you know not the the fastest paced team, but they threw a lot. You know, they 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 played long games, and with Jerry Kill, you know. When I think of Jerry Kill back in Minnesota and um, you know other places in his history, he's been a uh, lean pretty heavy on the running game kind of guy. And they brought in a couple of pretty talented running backs. Jamani Jones uh, was a Juco recruit, 220-pound uh, Juco recruit that I know they were really, really excited about. Um, they brought in a former four-star uh, who had played defense at TCU, Amante Watkins, who's you know got some real speed. Omari Samuels is still on the roster, uh, the transfer from Michigan, who hasn't really played much since since he uh, transferred to New Mexico State. But that seems like a position where um, they're they're going to be able to find somebody to I think lead on in the running game, take a little pressure off the passing game. And they've got some receivers that they're excited about. Dominic Jacito, uh made some big plays early last year, but got hurt and only appeared in three games. They've got some Juco guys that I know they're excited about. And Taylor Brooks and uh, Cordell David, a couple of you know, 6'4 uh, targets that uh, I know Brooks especially sounded like had a really, really good spring. But, you know, I, I think they are going to slow things down a little bit, lean on the running game a little bit shorten the game some and so these defensive numbers even though they're not you know a super super talented team they're in 127th in defensive roster strength but it's an experienced unit and they're going to get a little bit more of a break this year than uh they've gotten in the past that they did under the the previous regime you throw in a uh juco national champion winning quarterback and diego pavea uh who can run uh that seems to be his his uh you know, best asset. And New Mexico State, you know, Jerry Kill has won basically everywhere he's been. And they're, like I said, again, are winnable games on this schedule. Uh, Nevada is the season opener, the youngest team in college football, dead last in returning production in basically every category. Hawaii is second to, to the lowest in returning production. Uh, they are, you know, midseason, September 24th. They play UTEP and New Mexico as rivalry games, but those are winnable. Massachusetts, Lamar is one of the lowest-rated FCS teams in college football. I mean, they're they're not going to get to six wins, but there are six winnable games on this schedule, especially if uh, Jerry Kill is able to, you know, kind of work his magic and and get a productive running game that shortens the game and and allows that defense to take a step forward. So this is actually. Uh, you know, New Mexico State, like I said in that uh, you know previous stats update, 
they got the biggest boost. Um, they were 131st this time last week, but we made that update, and, and now they're uh, 127th. And, and part of that is is Jerry Kill. Uh, part of that is is uh, you know the coordinators that he's hired. But they're they're an intriguing team to me. I, I think that this schedule, which is ranks 100 and what 130th in strength of schedule, so there are opportunities, even though this is a brand new offense and a defense that returns a lot from a bad statistical unit last year. I, I think there are four wins and, and that might be a stretch definitely, but this, this team has that type of potential uh, in part because of the schedule in part, you know, change in philosophy. Javier, your thoughts on New Mexico state this year and, and, you know, being another team, mm-hmm. Kind of a bottom feeder that needs to take a big step here and move in the right direction. Yeah, but but the, you know they might be the best team so far that has done an amazing doing an amazing job on the on the recruiting trail. Uh, like we had just talked about uh, with the team prior, you know, at, in 2021 they finished 116th in overall ranking. 2022 they jump all the way up to 88. That's a really big jump, right? Not only, and that was spearheaded. By one of the best recruit, best transfer classes, probably out of probably the best transfer class out of all the teams we'll talk about today, but one of in the country. The, the transferring that they had this year was thirty five. That's really really good, and probably is a large reason as to why they finished so high as they did uh, when it comes to their overall recruiting ranking. Uh, but when you're able to bring in, you know, a four star, a former four star uh, from Michigan, when you're able to bring in a guy uh, like Makai Miller from, you know, uh, Miami of Ohio who turned himself into a three-star in college, right? Um, and came and comes in, one of the few kids that typically actually comes in with a better transfer rating than he did as high school rating, right? Uh, Amante Watkins, uh, running back from TCU, four-star high school kid. Uh, they, they did a really good job um, addressing some of their major issues in the transfer portal with high-quality guys. Now, they don't have as many, uh, but they have six really good ones, right? And I think that that's where they hit you know, so well to finish 35th in the country and transferring it is really good for them. And, you know, Nick didn't name a team that they actually competed against really well with last year um, in San Jose state. Actually, they lost to them 31, 37. And that's actually the team that they've chosen for their homecoming game this year. So they definitely, you know, want to get that game back. You know, they got some get back in that game, you know, as, as we say on the field, the other piece to what Nick was talking about with the schedule, all the games that he named for the most part, I believe every game he named was at home outside of the UMass game. That's, really good for them. You know, if you're going to be a team that's going to take somewhat of a, a leap, you know, in the next season, you're going to have to get some luck. Some of that has to do with your schedule. And you look at their tough games. They got them all on the road, right? They get Wisconsin on the road, Minnesota on the road. They, they you know, Missouri, Liberty, all on the road, which lends to them to being able to get some of these more, you know, closer to toss up games at home in front of their home stadium, which may be the push that they need to win some of these games. I absolutely agree with Nick. There's definitely six winnable games on this schedule. It's all on the backs of them, obviously, if they're able to do so. Uh, But like I said, when you look at their 2021 schedule, this is a team that just couldn't finish, right? So many of these games, Hawaii pulls away late, 48-34. Like I said, with San Jose State, 37-31, it was the final score of that game. I forget that play Hawaii twice last year. I was a little bit confused by the scheduling uh, in that. But, yeah, you know, at New Mexico, lost 34-25. There were some games in there that, you know, they're absolutely probably walked in the locker room and went, we maybe we should have won that. Or at the very least, you know, we should have competed better in said ball game. So I would like to go ahead and say New Mexico State's going to win at least three to four this year. I don't think that's me going on too much of a limb. Uh, but, yeah, I would absolutely agree with Nick. There's definitely six wins on this schedule. Moving over to 126 Temple. 
Uh, Temple upset Memphis 34 to 31 and improved to three and two on October 2nd, looking good, but then seven consecutive losses. Doom Rod carries future with the Owls. Stan Drayton, a former Texas assistant, takes over. Their DK win total is two and a half, as most of these teams have been. We got them at four and eight, though, so way over that two and a half. And Temple, yet another team uh, here with, uh, you know, a, another head coach looking for success. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd put them in that same category as New Mexico state and UMass though, especially starting out so well last year, but uh, you know, we've seen temple have some success. What do you think of them, of the owls for 2022, Nick? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that temple was competing in the American, right? I mean, for, for uh, division titles, get to the conference championship game, uh, that type thing, going to bowl games and and getting, uh, you know, they were they were going through a lot of coaches because those coaches were getting better jobs. I mean, Jeff Collins was there last, got to Georgia Tech, uh, Matt Rule, right, right before he, he went to Baylor, um, all the way back to Al Golden before he got Miami, you know, the Miami job. And, and this has been in, you know, the last decade or, or more, a job. Uh, kind of a, a, a bit of a stepping stone and a place where you come in and, and you know, can win and then move on uh, to the next thing. They were able to get Rod Carey uh, from Northern Illinois, where he had had some success, took what seemed like, you know, kind of a, a, a lateral move type job. And for for whatever reason, and, and I don't exactly know why, but things went south kind of in a hurry. And I know they were particularly hit hard in 2020. They, you know, I think started really late and then were one of those teams that just week in and week out um, just did a severe numbers disadvantage. And and that, you know, maybe carried over a little bit into last year. Like you mentioned, they started really strong, but then things just soured and and they ended up uh, ending on a, a pretty... Uh, long losing streak and, and just needed some fresh blood. And, and we'll see if Stan Drayton can come in and, and uh, revitalize this program to at least get it back to that level where, you know, one of the more consistent teams in the American, one of the, one of the teams that uh, has a chance to make a run at, at a conference title. Because right now, I mean, yeah, you, you know, we don't really think about, should we lump this team in with New Mexico State and, and UMass and UConn? But the last couple of years, I mean, they've they've played like it. Uh, I mean, they ranked 124th in overall team performance last year, 123rd on the offensive side of the ball. But I think that at least our you know stat projections expect Temple to to take a step forward. And part of that is you know they're bringing in even though they're uh, you know Stan Drayton is a first time head coach. He was at Texas, was part of some uh, strong offenses. Um, we expect this team to take a, a little bit of a step forward on the offensive side of the ball. They bring in Danny Langsdorf, who, who you know, has been a Power 5 coordinator at, at several places. Uh, didn't necessarily light the scoreboard on fire at Colorado the last couple of years, but, you know, has been a play caller at Nebraska, Oregon State, other places, um, you know, has a... Uh, has a resume of some you know, relatively um, big-time places and, and big-time jobs in contrast to uh, you know, what we've seen at, at UMass and, and New Mexico State, for example. 
Um, they're bringing in guys, you know, with Division two backgrounds, winners, but, you know, uh, not necessarily that Power 5 uh, experience. DJ Elliott's the defensive coordinator, very similar. He's been coordinator at several uh, Power 5 schools as well, Kansas, Colorado, Kentucky. So it's, it's kind of an interesting, you know, look at it. One, I, I think that the roster that they inherited, a little bit better shape overall. They're still in the triple digits in roster strength, 114th overall, uh, 114th on offense, 110th on defense. But, um, you know, there's there's some things to build around. Dewan Mathis went into and out of the transfer portal last year, was a transfer from Georgia, came in, won the job, uh, struggled a little bit, uh, but – uh, is somebody who has that Power 5 talent. They add Quincy Patterson, the former Virginia Tech and North Dakota State quarterback, who you know is most known for his ability to run the football. But you would think that one of those two guys is going to come in and, and you know give them somebody to build around at the quarterback position. Um, Edward Sadie, leading rusher last year. They've got you know, three uh, former transfers behind him probably going to be in there competing for uh, carries. They do lose Randall Jones and Jaden Blue, who transferred to Virginia Tech, uh, Blue did, but brought in, again, other Power 5 transfers. They're they're trying to do the, you know, improve the, the, the talent level, bring in guys who didn't work out at their last stop for whatever reason, but maybe they can find a home at Temple, mix them in with, you know, players who have, some experience, uh, especially in the secondary, is is probably going to be the strength of that defense for returning starters back. Plus, they bring in Dominic Hill, a transfer from South Carolina. So even though they're you know losing guys like William Quinku and and Manny Walker, guys who were at the high end in, in production and tackles for loss, things like that, uh, in last year's you know stat leaders. They bring back enough that I think there's there's something to work with here, and they're another one of those teams that you know yes they're at the very low end in our ratings, and and yes they might end up with a losing record. It's it, it's going to be difficult to have a, an immediate one year turnaround, but similar to, to some of the teams that we talked about already, there are winnable games here. We only have Temple favored in two games. They do get. An FCS opponent in Lafayette, they do get UMass. Again, these teams play each other a lot. Uh, they play Navy also, you know, uh, on this list. But USF, that game right now projected to be uh, within a touchdown. Rutgers at home projected to be within a touchdown. Duke was one of the worst Power Five teams in the country last year. That game right now is about an eight-point projected point spread. So you know, there there are winnable games, four wins, and and yet another over again. Not all these teams are going to be able to get to that, but these schedules and, and you know the the I think the floor for a lot of these teams <clears throat> has has raised a little bit, and so yeah, this team might you know not capitalize and they might go two and ten, they might go three and nine, but it wouldn't shock me at all if they go five and seven. So there's a lot of teams, and, and Temple being one of these, and maybe the strongest one we've talked about yet where you know the 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 floor is uh basically what they're coming in at last year and the the ceiling is is a good bit higher there's there's some room for growth here for temple 
would I be shocked if they end up bowl eligible? You know, that, that might sound like a stretch, but I'm looking down, you know, week to week in September and October and, and even that, you know, first week or two in, in November. There's, or, well, second week in November, no, they play Houston then. Uh, but, you know, there, again, are winnable games. There are six, seven winnable games. They won't win six or seven, but they might get, they might get to four. Xavier, I mean, Temple seems like, you know, we've drawn a line in the teams here and Temple is on the other side of the line. The other teams that we've talked about are probably behind them. If we're tearing these teams, what do you think of Temple for 2022? I mean, at some point, Temple has got to get it right, right? Like they have the blueprint. It was there. Like Nick said, it wasn't that long ago that Temple was at the, you know, at the very least in the middle part of the AAC. Like you, you knew that you were going to have to play your best going up there, especially with the defenses that they've had in the past, right? Like this is a team that at one point had one of the best defenses in college football, not too long ago. So they've had the blueprint there at Temple. I just feel like over the last couple of years, some things have gone awry for them, especially when you look at the way that the transfers just haven't hit the ground running as they had previously expected. Uh, you know, Dewan Mathis, we had talked about on this podcast, we all felt like, you know, had made the right decision going up there. Um, and at the very least, was going to give them a joy at the quarterback position. Uh, he didn't, he, he kind of, you know, sputtered and wasn't able to really get his footing. Other than that, you know, they bring in Quincy Patterson this year, which I love. Not only do I love it because of, who the kid is, right? I've loved Quincy Patterson since he was, you know, uh, at the Elite 11, right? You know, his story was pretty, was one of the, the better, you know, better stories there. He had like a 4.3 GPA coming out of high school. Like this kid was like a genius. Uh, you know, went to Virginia Tech, you know, it didn't pan out for him. But instead of going to another, you know, P5 school and, and you know, kind of just rotting on somebody's bench or just going into another quarterback battle, went to North Dakota State, just learn football and just, you know, to, to get better at the sport. And I think that that's an amazing move from him. Um, now he's coming back to Temple where I think he'll go in there and compete for the job right away. And if he gets it, I think could be somebody who definitely, cha- you know, changes their tone offensively as, you know, yes, he's thought of as more of an athlete, but this is a kid that had one hell of an arm when he went to Virginia Tech. And that was kind of the, the biggest thing that we saw while he was at the Elite 11 was uh, this kid can sling it. Uh, so I think that he definitely has some pro- to, um, some things to prove. Uh, so I think that that's going to be really good for him. I think, you know, at the very least, he'll compete for the starting job. They did a really good job once again on the transfer portal. Uh, the, another team that hit the transfer portal hard and, you know, went with quantity, right? Brought in 10 transfers. Uh, they brought in a punter, which I think I'm just going to say that for fun. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think, you know, they did a really solid job there um, on the transfer portal, bringing in some really talented guys from some big universities, you know, AM, South Carolina, Penn State, Michigan State, just to name a few. Um, and like I said, Quincy Patterson coming from North Dakota State. But yeah, I, I think that this is a team that just, I feel like over the last two years, it just maybe, you know, sometimes when you lose that many coaches back to back to back that have done such a good job setting you up, you, you fall, find yourself, you know, in a weird, you know, gray area where you're like, well, we, don't have the guys that kind of got us there and we're just trying to hold on to, to being relevant and keeping what they already said uh, set here at the university. They hit a little bit of a bump over the last two seasons. Uh, but I think this year is the year that they start to, you know, get right, get back on track. Um, 2022 for them, like Nick said, I think they have some very winnable games. Uh, they start off the year at Duke, which Duke has been one of the worst teams in college football the last couple of years. Let's just have it out. Right. Uh, this is a definitely a very winnable game for them, in my opinion, Then they play Lafayette. And then this game against Rutgers. Now, this game against Rutgers, in my opinion, is massive for them. Uh, and the reason why that's the case is it'll show a lot because this is a team that got lambasted by Rutgers last year. 
This was Rutgers' biggest win maybe in the last decade. I obviously I could be wrong about that, but I feel like P, I feel like Power Five versus Power Five. This was or Power Five versus even G Five is one of the biggest wins I've seen from Rutgers in the last ten years. They won that game 61-14. It was the first game of the season. It was in Piscataway, and now this game is at home, and you've got a little bit of a chance here to you know right the wrongs. That's a lot of sin in one game. It's a lot of watching them walk into your end zone. You know, over and over and over again, right? Like I can guarantee you, if I typed in Rutgers 2021 highlights, half uh, if it was a three minute video, a minute and thirty seconds might come from just that game alone. Like I would be hundred <laughs> percent, yeah. Like, like you've got a chance, and if you win that game, you could really start off the season four and up. You got UMass September 24th, and at that point, you built some confidence. I'm not saying they're going to go into Memphis and win that game or beat Memphis and UCF in back to back, you know, opportunities. But you've at least started yourself off in a situation where. You know, maybe we beat South Florida. Maybe we beat East Carolina at the end of the year. Now we're a bowl team all of a sudden. So I think, you know, their first four games will will be the thing that, you know, sets the record straight for Temple this season uh, and will show us if they've really gotten back on track or if this is going to be another year where they kind of just, you know, are walking through the forest where they just don't really understand what they're going to do next um, for, for Temple football. Like I said, for a team that not too long ago, had one of the better defenses in the country and have put up some really good NFL products. I think Harold Landry is the first one that comes to mind, but yeah, like have put out some really good teams over the last couple of years and just need to find themselves again. Uh, number 125 here is ULM. Uh, despite a five game losing streak to end the year, Terry Bowden expect uh, exceeded expectations in his first season at ULM. The Warhawks finished four and eight with uh, a win over Liberty being the highlight of the season. The DK win total is two and a half. This is yet another team that we have at four and eight. So going over that two and a half. So a different question here, because this is a first team in the last three that uh, isn't getting a new uh, coach. But uh, Nick, Sunbelt West is a very competitive division with you know ULM, Louisiana, Arkansas State, South Alabama, Southern Miss, Texas State, and Troy. Is this team closer to the bottom or closer to the top? Because this is a competitive division. You could see all these teams kind of, you know, uh, churning and beating each other up here. What do you think about ULM? Because it looks like they could be much better than this ranking, but obviously they're here for a reason too. Right. It's, it's you know, anytime you start reading about a team, researching a team, uh, even, you know, I, I, tried to, to, in the last week, put my eyes on at least one game of all these teams and, you know, try to pick one where they're competitive, don't necessarily want uh, to get the worst impression of, of these teams, but this is the lowest end of uh, our power rankings, you know, starting out in the preseason. And so on the one hand, you think, okay, these are, uh, the way we calculate it, the worst teams in college football. But even then, you do sort of have to, to guard against um, sort of over, uh, you know, getting overly optimistic because most of the time you're going to read about the positive things. You're going to read about the players who are coming back. Um, and, and there are at least, you know, I find things to like about each one of these teams. And you bring up a really, really good point about the Sunbelt West. I mean, it's wide open. Louisiana is, is definitely the, the favorite, but they're bringing in a first-time, first-year head coach, even though there's uh, some familiarity there, you know, promoting from within. But I was looking at it the other day, and, you know, 
South Alabama, a team that's really been struggling the last few years, uh, probably should go to a bowl game and and could make a run if there's not just a, a super smooth transition at Louisiana and they just kind of keep rolling. You know, they're a team that might end up uh, with a chance to win the Sunbelt West. Troy, you could make a case uh, to win the Sunbelt West. Is it that crazy to think that ULM, who overachieved last year but showed some real promise, you know, won four games when everybody in the world, you know, us included, thought that they were probably the worst team in college football. You know, was it a, a sort of a year one caught some teams by surprise? Liberty and, and Malik Willis. I mean, they they beat um, uh, one of the one of the best quarterbacks in college football last year. Or is it something that they can really build on? You know, there are they brought uh, had to change both coordinators, but brought in Matt Kubik, who was the uh, offensive coordinator a few years ago. In in you know the time when ULM had a really really exciting offense, they bring back several players who I thought showed some real promise in you know. At the quarterback position, they've got multiple guys who can run it and throw it, Chandler Rogers and Jaya Wright. At running back, you know, Andrew Henry and Malik Jackson both had big games at different times of the year. Uh, Boogie Knight has been a, a playmaker at times at receiver. Um, the offensive line struggled and, and doesn't rate you know particularly high, but uh, they've been hitting the transfer portal pretty hard the last couple of years. And, and actually, that's a point that uh, I don't want to forget to make. ULM has, has been uh, pretty tricky to keep up with roster-wise. They were one of the, the very, Air Force is always the last team, and we're lucky if we even get a roster uh, from them. But ULM was the last team that I was able to find an online roster this spring. And it wasn't even on their website. Like, it was part of a whole separate, anyway. Uh, but I, <laughs> they, you know, in, in 2021, in Terry Bowden's first year, we had our, our team profiles set up and our roster and, and returning production and, and all that good stuff based on our own calculations. And then they release a depth chart ahead of their week one game. And they've got a dozen guys that just sort of popped up on the depth chart that we didn't even have on their roster who were transfers from other FBS programs, some power five programs. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens again. They, they lost, unfortunately, some uh, you know, potential impact transfers, especially in the secondary, Nick Roberts and uh, Josh Newton, who were maybe fringe all Sun Belt uh, type players, transferred to SMU and TCU respectively. Um, but you know, don't don't be shocked if they end up uh, having a couple of of starters that we don't even you know right now have in our team profiles just could for whatever reason, it's been difficult to nail down exactly who is, is coming and going there at ULM. But I, I think back to the original question, the, 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 uh, the, the distance from the top to the bottom of the Sunbelt West might be the, the closest, maybe of any division in college football at this point. And, even though right now we have ULM as our lowest ranked team in the Sun Belt and one of the you know bottom six teams in college football, it's there's there's opportunity there. 
there are winnable games. That division is wide open. They have a pretty hellish non-conference schedule at Texas, at Alabama, at Army. Uh, you would think they'll be able to, to uh, win that game against FCS Nichols and, and go one and three in those non-conference games. But every Sun Belt game, even that opener against Louisiana, who has been consistently you know, one of the best teams in the Sun Belt, one of the best, most consistent G5 teams uh, out there, they get it at home, and it's a first-time head coach. Um, the only automatic loss in Sun Belt play, in my opinion, is is that Coastal Carolina game, and they get it at home. Who knows what happens? You know, uh, Grayson McCall has been banged up. They Coastal Carolina has to replace almost its entire defense. Maybe that game is not even out of the realm. So uh, it's going to be really, really interesting. Similar to what I said before, a lot of winnable games and a, a division that is wide open. ULM could could at the very least ruin somebody's season, uh, make it so a team like Troy or Georgia State or Texas State or South Alabama doesn't go to a bowl game because they uh, beat them, upset them, um, you know, in the second half of the season. What, what do you think, Xavier? ULM, you know, a good team, like we said, competitive division. Absolutely. Um, and, and the Sun Belt is, you know, uh, always better than advertised. You think ULM can, uh, you know, make some waves here, or are they going to be right around this area at the end of the year? Yeah, it's all dependent on their start. Like, it's a 1,000% dependent on how they start the season off, right? This is a team that has to remain even-keeled mm-hmm. even after you play at Texas and at Alabama. Right, you're probably going to start the season off one and two, uh, more than likely beating Nickel State at home. Uh, but you then go into a, a three game stretch there where you get rate where you get Louisiana and you get Coastal Carolina both at home. Where if you handle your business, you have a really good shot in this conference. Right, it, it, a lot of times with this with, with the Sun Belt, yeah, you have like one or two teams at the top of a division, but the rest of it, the rest of the teams in there, really is a hundred percent based on when they got hot, like when they got hot and who they were able to beat and, and carry that momentum over. Uh, you know, you look at ULM last year. They started off the season four and three. It was like, okay, cool. And then that back half of the year, they kind of just sputtered out. You know, they lose to App State. Then they lose, a you know, you lose at Texas State, which is a game you probably feel like you shouldn't have lost. Then you lose versus Arkansas State. One Once again, one of those games that you probably feel like you shouldn't have lost. And then you lose your last game of the season against Louisiana. You know, but you only lose 21 to 16. This was a really good, a really competitive out uh, bunch last year. There weren't many blowouts on their schedule. You know, it's App State, Georgia State, and Coastal Carolina uh, for the teams that beat them in conference that were blowouts. But when you look at it in that regard, you go, okay, cool. That's only three games that we really look at and we go, okay, we just weren't competitive on that day. Every other one, you could have said if the ball went a different direction, we win that game and we might have been a bowl team this year uh, or last year, excuse me. So, for them, it's about how they start, and it's about how you mitigate this, you know, October 1st through November 12th, which essentially is when you're playing the middle of the Sun Belt. And that is where you either decide you're going to be a team to make a bowl game or you're not. Like, it's one thing to go and beat Coastal Carolina for their homecoming. That'll be cool. That'll be nice, right? It'll be a nice story. You beat Coastal Carolina, who have been the, the, the recent big dogs of the division. But it's about beating Arkansas State away. It's about beating South Alabama away. It's about beating Texas State at home. And it's about going into Georgia State and beating them away. You know, those are the teams that you have to beat if you're going to make your first bowl game. So I, I think 
it's going to be rather difficult because I really feel like the Sun Belt this year, especially that division, is an absolute like war. It's going to be a battle, to be perfectly honest with you. There's no team in that division that I think is just like far and away the best team. And so it's going to be really difficult for them to just say, all right, cool, we're just going to run off six games in this part of the on in this part of the Sun Belt. But I really do feel like they have a team that could do it. It's all about whether or not they can find it at the right time. Uh, they definitely feel confident about their bunch because they didn't do much on the recruiting trail. Uh, they brought in nine, ten people total. Uh, they had seven kids sign a letter of intent, two transfers, and one hard commit that's still um, up in the air. But, like, you bring in only ten guys, you probably feel pretty confident about the people that you already have on your team. And at the very least, you, you say, okay, we can go to battle with these guys. And I think with that being the case – ULM is going to be one of those teams that I'm – I won't say I'm scared about as, as as a Georgia State alumni, but I will say they can creep up and beat anybody. They genuinely could. And like I said, in a division that's wide open, they just have to make sure that losing to Texas and Alabama doesn't derail their entire season. Because at the end of the day, yes, it is Texas and Alabama, but sometimes teams just can't get out of the bug after a while. Sometimes you just get blown out so bad that you're like – all right, we're not going to wake up for another two weeks before we see Coastal. And at that point, you're behind the eight ball uh, because you play, you would have played Louisiana and Arkansas State at that point. And that was so. the only team that Nick said was a guaranteed loss was Coastal. You know, yeah. so that's uh, that would be a brutal run if they did kind of, you know, enter enter the season sleepily, as you exactly. said. And, and that's your biggest concern with with a team like ULM with a young coach is that you he's got to keep that locker room together during that early stretch like you're not gonna you're probably not gonna be texas and you're never gonna be alabama at tuscaloosa it's just not gonna happen but it's getting them reset to go and play conference play and not allowing a game against alabama to then turn into two losses against you know division opponents and all of a sudden you're only two in the division and people already have a head uh you know a head start on you and avoid you know significant or, or season injuries, injuries. Yeah. exactly mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what that's the biggest issue with playing some of these bigger teams at the beginning of the year is that if your team isn't a competitive outfit, you find it very difficult outside of obviously the money aspect. You find it very difficult as giving it a reason for them to even be on the schedule because you're like, well, now our morale is shot. Like our morale is absolute shot. You know, it's happened somewhat last year to Georgia State. You know, they started off the season against, you know, North Carolina and Auburn, and you had two games there where you lost one really close to Auburn, but you still walked away out of that non-conference part of the year, one and four. And now all of a sudden you had to walk up a mountain to get, you know, to bowl eligibility. They were able to do it, but that's not a situation you want to be in. Uh, going over here to 124 Bowling Green uh, comes in. They, uh, they had an inconsistent season finishing four and eight, but uh, they did show some promise. They beat Minnesota, which still makes me mad because I uh, had Minnesota in that game. 14 to 10, lost a little bit of cash on that one. Uh, Buffalo, they beat 56 to 44, and they won their season finale against Ohio 21 to 10. Their DK total is three and a half. This is another team that we have going four and eight, so we have them over that three and a half. But with Bowling Green, Nick, um, they, they rank number one in overall returning production. They won four games. So why are they the worst team in the Mac? Akron is still in the Mac, right? So, uh, I mean, there's, there's some rough teams in the Mac here, uh, and Bowling Green is at the bottom of it. Why would that be? So the, the short answer to that is uh, those stat projection updates that we did. 
Uh, Akron was basically in this spot. Bowling Green and Akron pretty much flipped um, when we did that update. And it, it's interesting because, you know, moving a team from 120 to 124, in some in some cases you think, oh, five spots, that's, that's fairly significant. But a lot of the teams in this range seemingly are, are a good bit closer than uh, they have been in years past. Like I said, I mean, is there a clear worst team? Probably not. And I actually think that uh, most of these teams are pretty tightly packed together. So when you, you know, hire a, a well-respected head coach like Joe Moorhead, like Akron did, uh, and Bowling Green just sort of kept the status quo with Scott Leffler coming back for a fourth year where they've consistently, even though, you know, yeah, last year the, the win over Minnesota looked like a real turning point and finishing the season with a win over uh, Ohio was a, a great way to do it. They haven't, you know, th- those those past historical uh, team performance ratings, not great. 112th overall, 127th on offense, our current projection for Bowling Green uh, based on the last three years of data that we've got for, you know, head coach and coordinators and things like that. We expect that offense to be just about the same 129th overall. And on the one hand, you know, that, that seems uh, really low because like you mentioned, this is the team that returns more on offense as far as its previous seasons, uh, passing yards percentage and offensive line start, uh, excuse me, uh, snap percentage and, and, you know, rushing, receiving all that good stuff. And we throw it all into the, the formula and it spits out Bowling Green, uh, brings back the, the biggest piece of the pie. And we say this every year, you know, Bill Connolly has done some research in the past that, that shows you're on that extreme end, whether it's the, the, you know, top 10 or the bottom 10, that, that has shown a pretty significant, pretty reliable, uh, indication that you're either going to, you know, jump up a, a win or two or maybe even make a a, a pretty big jump where a four and eight team like bowling green could make a real run at a, a bowl game or if you're on the the wrong end of things uh see a significant you know a uh, uh, decrease in in that win total so i'm i am am uh, a little nervous that we've got bowling green last in the mac because they are a team that brings just about everybody back they've even added to what they've got coming back, uh, even though you know Austin Osborne and Tyrone Broden and Christian Sims, I mean that's about as good as a, a of a wide receiver duo and tight end as you're going to find in the MAC. The the three together, uh, they also added C.J. Lewis from Boston College. They also added uh, you know some other guys that the offensive line is returning intact. Now it was you know ranked 129th in O line performance last year so it was one of the worst offensive lines in the country but they bring everybody back and they add uh you know a couple of guys who who might end up starting so um bowling green should be better they should get one of those bumps from being on the extreme end of you know returning production and, and bringing everybody back however they they probably overachieved a little bit i think if they were to play that minnesota game again a hundred times, you know, would Bowling Green win one of those? Maybe, maybe not. They were like a 30 point underdog. Um, so that, that, uh, you know, every once in a while, something like that happens and it did, but, uh, that Bowling Green team last year, 
I think overachieved uh, record wise just just a little bit. So part of me wants to say that uh, that okay, they they really can take that next step forward. But part of me, you know, and, and again, the way that we do things, we look at at past um, performance, and there's not a whole lot to get excited about of the last three years of of Scott Leffler. And and even though the defense, I, I should say, did take a, a pretty good step forward, they ranked 83rd in defensive team performance last year, which you know doesn't sound great, but uh, that was what the that was right on on par with New Mexico. Uh, last year, who we talk about being one of the more respected uh, defensive coaching staffs at, at the very least, and, and did take a big step forward. So that Bowling Green defense, you know, there there was some real promise there, and they're a top ten team in returning production on the defensive side of the ball as well. But you know, it, it, it's got to be there's got to be something that that causes them to take that next step. And so far, the style of offense that they run as slow as they go as, as sort of, you know, traditional uh, concepts as, as they like to, um, you know, operate in. Uh, we're just, we're just not seeing that big jump just yet. However, again, we're on the over because we've been on the over on just about everybody, but Navy. And uh, so I, I do at least feel good about that because, you know, I think you could make an argument that there are worse teams in the MAC than than Bowling Green, Akron, of course, uh, in that conversation. But the fact that Akron was able to sort of inject a little uh, with a with a coach that had that Power Five background um, gave them a little bit of a boost. Put Bowling Green there at the end, but they're they're another one that I'm going to be watching because I, I do think um, I do think there's some room for for improvement and. This is a team that uh, knocked off, you know, some decent teams last year and is set in the MAC just about every game is, you know, going to be a, a one possession projected point spread or, or the very most, you know, 10 or, or 12, something like that. So uh, just about every conference game is winnable for Bowling Green. And they'll have an opportunity to, you know, pick up a win against FCS. Eastern Kentucky and and who knows four wins is, is certainly possible again five or six is is uh, within reach too as well I'd say. Xavier, what do you think of Bowling Green? Do you think they have uh, enough juice to climb out of the cellar of the uh, MAC here? Hey, it's gonna be. It's, I'm not gonna be as pessimistic as Nick was, uh, but I mean I, I do agree to an extent. You know the, what, what the MAC has shown in the past couple of years is your offense does need to be a little bit more explosive if you expect to make that kind of a yearly jump. Um, their offense has been a little bit more methodical, um, and I think that that's kind of been what has been part of the problem because when you look at a lot of their games, they just aren't scoring enough points, right? Like in the MAC, we, we've talked about how many times how explosive these offenses are. Like Kent State last year, you only put up 20 points, you lose 20 to 27. Akron, you only put up 20 points, you lose 35 to 20. Uh, Northern Illinois, you only put up 26 points. Toledo, only 17 Miami of Ohio, only seven. Their offense just consistently did not put up enough points. So even in games where their defense was, you know, decent, it just was it just wasn't good enough. Um, in a conference, like we said, all the time. The Mac is so fun to watch because any given night, somebody could probably go for 200 yards rushing. Who knows? You just you just really never know with that conference, uh, which makes it that much more exciting. Uh, but going into this year, I think maybe they figured something out here. I think, you know, that you're four and eight. Yes, one of those wins is over Minnesota, obviously. 
So that definitely is maybe not something you can, you know, put into this year's schedule when you look at the fact that they play UCLA and Mississippi State. But I wouldn't necessarily say that they couldn't go into Mississippi State and win that game. Who knows? Like that is Mississippi State is one of those teams. Nick, I know you you look like you're, you know, you look like what the heck are you talking about, kid? But at the same time, Mississippi State is a team that is either cooking or not. And if if they're not cooking with that offense, they could go three and out seven straight times and nobody will be surprised. Like right. either Mike, you know. I made a face, but Bowling Green beat Minnesota last year. Won nine You're games. Right. And, I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it could happen. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't expect it, but you're right. They, you know, they beat I mean, yeah. Minnesota. So. I, you know, like I'm, I'm just saying out of, out of all the games that they first start off with the first four games, Mississippi State is one of those games where I'm like, okay, you're not supposed to win this one, but could you possibly, uh, you know, I, I think they'll be Eastern Kentucky uh, they actually have their homecoming September 17th. I think that might be the earliest homecoming in football. Uh, but they play Marshall, uh, which is a game I think that's, like I said, when I look at some of these teams that look for barometer games, that's one of them for me uh, because Marshall is one of those teams that I think in their own right is looking to bounce back themselves. So I think that, you know, Bowling Green and them both coming into that game, if Bowling Green gets blown out by Marshall, I'll be very pessimistic for what they're going to end up doing in the MAC. Uh, but, yeah, I think Bowling Green, I'm going to be a little, like I said, I'm a little bit more positive. I think they can get the five wins this year. Uh, now, once again, that's, a, that's literally like one game more positive than, you know, what their last year's record was. But I also wouldn't be t- too terribly surprised. The only pause for me is the fact that their recruiting was worse this year than it was last year. Uh, you know, they dropped nine spots. Their transfer rating was pretty poor, uh, only bringing in five transfers themselves. Uh, I'm not so sure that, you know, they're going to be able to to lean on any of the guys that they really brought in, uh, maybe outside of DJ Taylor and uh, Marcelo, Marcelo Mendiola, the offensive tackle. Uh, the rest of the guys, I'm not 100% sure if they're going to be able to lean on them going into this season, which is a bit of a caution, especially when you look at a defense or excuse me, when you look at an offense, like I said, that wasn't able to really put up a lot, a lot of points. They didn't necessarily address that in the transfer window at all. Uh, so I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, they're going to just say, all right, we're going to roll out this exact same offense and hope that a year of, you know, an offseason is going to make them better, uh, which sometimes works. And obviously, like I've said on this podcast, old garbage just stinks more. So you never really know. Uh, coming in at 123, Rice, and they had similar peaks and valleys to Bowling Green, including a 30-24 to win at UAB and a 35-31 win over Louisiana Tech in the finale that stopped a four-game skid, uh, finishing them at 4-8. and eight. Um, But uh, their DK totals 3.5. We have got them going 4-8 and eight again, so another team that's over. Uh, for Rice, Nick, I-, I like this question we have here what wrinkle should we expect oc marcus tuyasa sopo to put into the uh offense in his second year with the owls here so always uh very happy to say uh, tuyasa sopo's name because we had one in football uh we had one in baseball i mean there's like a hundred of them aren't there more tuyasa sopo still at washington right now i mean it seems like they always start at washington and then move out across the country Mm -hmm. and uh here we go at rice here but what do you think about the owls for um uh, 2022. Yeah, I saw that. I uh, I did get my hands on uh, an Athlon Sports preseason magazine just a, a couple of days ago, so I haven't got to to dive in fully. But I tried to skim uh, all the teams we're talking about today, and and saw you know, and and I'm sure there's 50 or 60 
teams where it, it talks about an offensive coordinator putting in wrinkles uh, or, you know, we're going to switch this up or, or, you know, you watch a spring game and like, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're doing some different things this year and, and they don't necessarily tell you what, what they are. And, and, you know, there was just that one little line, Marcus Tuyasasopo is going to be uh, adding some wrinkles to the offense and it is his second year. Um, so what's, you know, what's it going to be? And, uh, that, that I think is, is up to us to guess, but I will say that Rice has done some, you know, fairly unique things in the past. I mean, we're, we're fairly used to Mike Bloomgren as the head coach there. It's his fifth year comes from Stanford. So he, he brought that system with him where they'll line up. Uh, more often than not, with a fullback, tight end, maybe even two tight ends, and they they lean pretty heavy on the run game, but they will take some shots down the field. They've had some pretty good receivers at times, good enough, you know, where a guy like Jake Bailey uh, transfers to SMU and during spring practice. So, um, you know, there there are some uh, you like I said, you know that that back to the future type style of offense um, is now to the point where it in itself is, is kind of unique. But uh, this time last year, I was reading about how Tuyasa Sopo wanted to, um, you know, go a little bit more spread, go a little bit uh, you know, faster tempo, things like that. Um, but how it ended up playing out, probably the most unique thing about it was they had kind of, uh, you know, a, a Swiss army knife type, piece in Jordan Myers, who was listed as a tight end on the roster, was listed as a running back on the depth chart, you know, played some wide receiver. Um, they, they got him carries. They tried to get him the ball, um, you know, as, as a receiver. And basically he was one of the, the best and most versatile players available. So they were trying to, to use that to their advantage and, and find, you know, unique and creative ways to get him the football. So, I'm curious because now Myers is out of eligibility. Um, is there going to be somebody who takes over that particular role? Is Jack Bradley, who's the you know, returning starting tight end because Myers moved around so much that, that Bradley actually ended up as the starter. Uh, is he going to be used in a similar way? I, I wouldn't expect it because he's six, six and you know, two thirty or, or more. One interesting thing that happened, Luke McCaffrey, who transferred there last year, to play quarterback, look like he, he actually, I think, won the job coming out of uh, fall camp, has made a full-time transition to wide receiver. So it's going to be a QB battle between Wiley Green and TJ McMahon. Luke Mac, uh, McCaffrey is not in it, but is he going to get snaps at quarterback? Is he going to, you know, are they going to try to get him uh, touches out of the backfield? Is he just going to be um, a traditional wide receiver? I wouldn't expect it. I, I think he's somebody to watch and, and you know, see uh, what are some unique things that they can do with him. They brought in some intriguing receiver transfers and Sam Crawford, who was a starter at Tulsa. Uh, Isaiah Ersdale, uh, you know, showed some promise at times at West Virginia. They bring in a former tight end starter and Gavin, uh, Gavin Reinwald from Cal. So Tuyasa Sobo is going to have some, some pieces. Cam Montgomery was second leading rusher last year, but he was listed as a wide receiver on, uh, their roster. So, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to, in a place like Rice, where, you know, high academic standards, low numbers, because they have had uh, a fair amount of guys 
leave through the transfer portal, they have to get creative and, you know, find ways to, to be unique and, and stay competitive that way. And it, it's worked. I mean, they've, you know, four and eight last year, finished 119th in our final power ranking. So certainly not the best team in college football, but uh, they were, you know, basically uh, two plays away from bowl eligibility. They lost a pair of back-to-back games in overtime and that four and eight could have been six and six real easy. So this is a team that our projections don't love. I mean, 3.68 wins, two wins in Conference USA, but Conference USA is about as wide open as it gets from top to bottom, similar to the Sunbelt West. And especially with you know Marshall, Southern Miss uh, leaving the, the league, there's there's going to be an opportunity for a team like Rice, who itself is on the way out the door, uh, to to maybe make a move. And they too, as usual, have some really really tough non-conference games: USC, Louisiana, Houston. Probably not going to win any of those. But if you take care of business against FCS McNeese, and then any game in Conference USA is winnable. Even you know the defending division champs UTSA and, and Western Kentucky. You know a lot of turnover there for. Uh, some of their most talented players. So even those games, I don't think you you necessarily write down as guaranteed losses. So Rice, if if Sopo is able to put in some wrinkles, if they're able to uh, you know replace some of the important pieces they lost on defense, especially Elijah Garcia, Naeem Smith, Antonio Montero, you know th- this is a team that can give uh, other uh, you know can give opponents fits in part because of the style of offense they play, shorten the game, you know, keep things close in the fourth quarter, and they might end up uh, being able to pull off a, a couple of upsets and, and sneak into bowl eligibility. So they're yet another team that the, the floor is is relatively high. And yeah, things could could go wrong, but there's room, you know, op, there there is uh, opportunity to grow and, you know, maybe make a run at bowl eligibility. Don't necessarily expect it, but this is a team that was very, very close last year. What do you think of Rice, Xavier? Do you think they can, uh, you know, take a step up this year and maybe add with a couple of these wrinkles on offense, become a better team? Or do you expect them to kind of be in this area, you know, uh, where they usually are? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with Nick on this one. Like, this is a team, and I've said this a lot in this podcast, I know, but genuinely Nick hit it all right on the head. This is a team that could have been six and six last year. Like, like he said, two plays away to being six and six going to a bowl game. And now, and instead of we're talking about them today, we're probably talking to them in a couple of, you know, in a couple, a week or two, right? Like, let's just be honest. Like this is a team that I know for a fact is going into going to this year. And that's going to be what they're, you know, the rhetoric that they live by is, you know, a game of inches because they literally stopped themselves from getting bowl eligibility in a game of inches. So, I think that this is a team that can absolutely get to six wins this year. Uh, maybe I'm high, the highest on this team as any team on this, you know, during this episode. I just wanted to make sure the next two teams I wasn't too high on. But in this episode, uh, you know, and, and when I look at their schedule, their schedule, in my opinion, is, is rather top heavy. You know, they, they I feel like they get the dogs of their schedule kind of at the beginning. You get your Louisiana, USC, Houston first four weeks. Yes, you get McNeese State in there, so that might be the one game that they do win in that time period. But, you know, first four games, get them out the way. Then you get UAB. So first five games, you may start off one and four, two and three at best. Uh, but then you can, you know, 
once again, like we talked about earlier, if they can ride that wave and not get, you know, allow those games to end up snowballing into them losing against teams that I feel like they're more, you know, uh, competitive against and, and more of toss up matchups, then they'll be they'll be per, a per, uh, perfectly fine. Excuse me. Uh, I think four and eight is the absolute minimum that this team does this year. Uh, I, and I really like I said, I think this is a team that will absolutely be out of the bottom coming into next year this time. Right. We will not be talking about Rice at this ranking, maybe, maybe, you know, like five or six spots, you know, higher, but still not this ranking, you know, going into next year, uh, because I think they will at the very least finish six and six uh, and make it to a bowl game. Uh, and, and obviously I'm not going to ask Nick when's the last time Rice made a bowl game, um, but, you know, 2014. Nice. Thank you. So, yeah, this is that's, a, that's in the notes. That's in the notes. <laughs> just kidding. I just I, I I remembered writing that in there today. And and this is like six point type. So I, I understand you. You missing the, la- the, the, the last time Rice made a bowl game. I was graduating high school. There you go. Okay, you, didn't, you didn't have to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks a lot, Xavier. I mean, well, I had to get my give back since, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, look at the you notes. have to get us both back. Uh, come on, man. Uh, I, mean, but, I, didn't make, I didn't mean to make you feel old too, Scott. That was just, you know, a dig at Nick, really. Right. The gray hair in my beard makes me feel old. Uh, <laughs> going over uh, to number 122, UNLV. Uh, UNLV started out 0-6. Uh, after 0-6 debut in 2020 and uh, 0-8 start in 2021, UNLV head coach Marcus Royal finally broke free with some wins over uh, New Mexico and Hawaii. And the Rebels finished 2-10 last year but they lost six one-score games, so competitive. Uh, a very competitive 2-10, as competitive, I guess, as 2-10 can get here. Um, their DK total is 4.5, so the, uh, you know tied for the highest of this group here. This is another team, though. We got it 4-8, so at 4.5, we're going to take the under on them. Um, for UNLV, Nick, um, is how different is this offense going to look in 2021, especially, you know, they just lost an all-time leading rusher in program history and Charles Williams. So uh, they need to get better. Losing him is going to be a big blow. Uh, what do we think about UNLV for 2022? That, that to me is the biggest question because, you know, they've got talent at the quarterback position. Cameron Field, returning starter, was the Mountain West freshman of the year. Uh, his top target now that Steve Jenkins has entered the transfer portal is Kyle Williams, who is the 2020 Mountain West Freshman of the Year, uh, Freshman All-American type season uh, a couple of years ago. They also brought back uh, Doug Brumfield, who you know, has started, uh, was a 100-yard uh, rusher, gives him a little uh, athleticism there at the quarterback position, was injured last year, Um entered the transfer portal, but decided to return. And they added Harrison Bailey, who was a you know high, high four fringe five-star recruit coming out of high school who signed with Tennessee, looked for a while like he was the future of that program. Uh, they brought him in to compete for this job. So you've got, you know, multiple players, three players who have a legitimate shot at uh, winning the quarterback position, a couple of them have starting experience. Did Bailey actually even ever make a start? He, he might have. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I forget, but they've got experience there. They've got some uh, ability and got a little bit of talent to work with in the receiving room with Williams coming back. They also added Ricky Wright, who, uh, excuse me, Ricky White from Michigan State, who was a high school teammate of Harrison Bailey. 
um, who had a 196 yards in uh, the game against Michigan in, in 2020. So, you know, has flashed some high end uh, production, uh, at least in a, in a single game at the time it was a school record, I believe didn't play last year, but um, you know, somebody that they expect to come in and, and play right away, bring in a lot of experience or excuse me, bring back a lot of experience on the offensive line, added transfers uh, who have an opportunity to get some immediate playing time there as well. But they do lose, you know, arguably their best defensive player to the transfer portal, kind of the uh, player to be named in the the trade for uh, for White was uh, Jacoby Winman, the, the, you know, really productive edge rusher, linebacker for uh, UNLV last year was a, a 90 rated player in our individual player ratings. Uh, very, very productive last year, led the team, you know, 119 tackles, 11 and a half tackles for loss, had six and a half sacks. I mean, very, very productive year. Uh, Going to be difficult to replace him. And, and they also lost kind of unexpectedly a, a, a you know, returning starter, expected starter at safety in Bryce Jackson, who uh, was one of those, you know, somewhat underrated potentially transfers to New Mexico State who uh, could help you know, give them a, a little bit of a boost, but UNLV has some talent, you know, not only uh, Bailey and White, they brought in Robbins, Aiden Robbins, uh, transfer from Louisville at, at the running back position. Uh, maybe he, you know, steps in and, and uh, will compete to replace the chuck wagon, as if you ever heard a UNLV uh, game late on a, a Friday night is when when I often got to, to catch him. The, the announcers said Chuck Wagon about 13 times uh, a day. But, you know, there, there's a question there. Who's going to replace Charles Williams? And, and is it Chad Mygar? Is it Courtney Reese? Or will Aiden Robbins, uh, who on paper, at least as far as, you know, their high school recruiting rating uh, would suggest the most talented uh, in raw talent. And then there was a, a former, you know, really highly rated recruit from – uh, Oregon transfer from Oregon, who got banged up last year in his first real opportunity for playing time, Javon Wilson. So, you know, Robbins and Wilson are both 220, 230 pound guys, big, big running backs. Courtney Reese is a little guy. Nagyar is a, you know, kind of a bruiser as well. So are they going to use that size and, and potential talent at the running back position, even though it's, you know, a bit unproven? Or are they going to open it up and, and rely on Kyle Williams and Ricky White and uh, guys like Jordan Jakes, who was a transfer from the Power Five level last year, who you know got a little bit of playing time but not a ton. So it is it is a question and, and one that I think uh, we don't know necessarily um, what to expect because uh, Marcus Arroyo was gifted one of the best running backs, the best uh, by statistical measures you know, in school history and was pretty much forced to, to ride him uh, for, for a large part of the last two seasons. It didn't necessarily lead to a lot of wins, but there were many, many close losses. And like you mentioned, this UNLV team kind of similar to, to Rice. I mean, that's two and 10. Yeah. But they could have been in a bowl uh, if a couple of, of bounces went the other way, or if they were able to finish, um, you know, a, an early lead or, 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 you know, things like that. Uh, so UNLV was in a lot of games, didn't get it done. Will this be the year that they take that next step? It, it might be a necessity because there is a new athletic director there, and, and Marcus Arroyo is two and sixteen in his career. 
Um, so this is kind of a, you know, could could potentially be a make or break season because everybody um, or, you know, a lot of folks uh, point to UNLV as kind of that sleeping giant in the Mountain West. And uh, there's been opportunities to win. They just haven't quite got it done yet. Four and eight, absolutely possible. This is the highest uh, DraftKings win total on our list, uh, if I if I remember correctly, right? Tied with with Navy. So yeah, you Navy. know, this is this is a team that the odds makers think you know can knock on the door of bowl eligibility, and I tend to agree. Um, it's it's funny that the two <laughs> that we're under, uh, the two so far, I actually kind of wish we were on the over because I, I think that UNLV was close in a lot of ways last year. Um, and there again are, are plenty of winnable games on the schedule. I think sort of the, the placement and the, you know, home versus away. And, and, you know, I would much rather than play Hawaii and Nevada earlier since those teams are going to be so young. Those are actually the last two regular season games. So that might actually negate some of that advantage there. But um, other than the schedule, not setting up perfectly, you know, this is still a team that, even though they're only favored in two, uh, is probably going to be in a lot of close games and have an opportunity to win some of those games. So, can they get to five? Can they can they squeeze out six? Uh, wouldn't shock me, but you know, kind of have to to uh, prove it. And they haven't they haven't gotten it done yet. So, I guess if we're trying to feel better about our under here. Uh, maybe that's it. But uh, this is you know, this is a team that that I think is close to a, uh, to a breakthrough. Um, at least they're going to have that opportunity this year. What do you think, Xavier, UNLV, closer to uh, bowl eligibility or this under that we have them pegged for? For their head coach, it better be closer to, you know, a breakthrough. <laughs> like, you know, at some point you're no longer the darling anymore. You're just the guy that didn't get it done. Like, you know, it, it's nice – it's been a nice story of how, you know, he's gotten to UNLV and tried to reshape the, you know, the program, the money that they pumped into the program since he's gotten there. You know, that that's amazing. At the same time, we need, you know, production. Two and ten is not going to cut it. I don't even think four and eight is going to cut it to be realistic. He's got to go ahead and, and get to a bowl game this year. You know, he's had – this will be year three, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, at this point, I feel like he's got to, you know, show real pro- progression, and that's only going to be in the form of a bowl game. Now, when you look at their schedule, I do believe it's possible. Right, they they start off with Idaho State, a game I feel like they should win. Play Cal is one of those weird teams that if you catch them early enough, you might be able to get a win over them. Like their offense has That's never a been something. Game. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they, their offense has never been something to strike fear in anybody. Uh, but their defense typically, you know, is what you know you're always worried about with Cal. They always have at least one or two good defensive linemen that kind of you know run shop while they're there. Uh, but that's a very winnable game. Then you play North Texas at home again. Uh, like you said, you can very well start off, you know, three and zero, three and one in your first four, and that that should set the groundwork for a team that has an opportunity to really do this, you know, and, and really take all of this, you know, talent and take all of this, you know, the, like I said, uh, investment and really turn it into wins. Uh, and like I said, for Marcus Arroyo, he better have, you know, if you look at the recruiting trail, they they finished eighty second in the transfer rating, which I believe is the second or third highest of the episode. Uh, they brought in, you know, Harrison Bailey, which obviously was kind of the crown and the jewel, uh, you know, or the jewel in the crown, excuse me, uh, of this year's recruiting class. Um, and he's a guy that if he hits the ground running for them, obviously, you know, this is a team that, you know, a bowl game should very well be in there, you know, the near future if he's able to hit the ground running. Harrison Bailey is one of the, well, I know he says only a four-star coming out of high school. You talk to anybody in the South, anybody, 
Harrison Bailey was like the next Peyton Manning. I'm not kidding. I, I wish I was kidding. I'm not. Uh, Harrison Bailey has had so many plaudits written about him, and it's not just because he ended up at Tennessee. Uh, well before that, coming out of Marietta, I've watched Harrison for a very long time. Uh, this guy, if he can hit the ground running and doesn't end up in a Chase Bryce type situation, will be perfectly fine. Uh, and it absolutely could, you know, make up for, for an offense that needs his production going into this year. And you're right, Nick. This was a team that very well could have been five and seven last year, you know, six and six last year if it wasn't for, you know, them not being able to finish the games. Right. 24, 28, 17, 24, 20 to 27, 30, 38. Now, those four scores all happened in back to back to back to back weeks. Like it's really one of those situations where I, I genuinely think a Royal has it going over there. He just needs the wins. He just needs the ball to bounce in his direction one more time than normal uh, for him to end up with a, with a six win ball club. And I think they do it this year. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he didn't do it in the first year head coach draft. I forget who drafted him, uh, but, you know, Hey, maybe we, we do a third-year head coach draft, which would just be unnecessary. Uh, Scott's raising his hand right now for anybody not being able to watch the podcast. He definitely took a royal and uh, definitely rude that day. But, hey, if you're picked by – if Scott has another bad year, let's put it out. I'm putting this out right here. If you pick by Scott and he has another bad year, if you're picked by Scott, he's just, you know, he's just the guy at this point. I'm the black cloud. I yeah, see. absolutely. You know, he he's a telltale sign that anywhere now, if Scott picks this team, bet the under. Just just bet the under hard. <laughs> just go for it. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, you could say I that about Texas for the last decade. So see, see, I mean, it just follows you everywhere, doesn't it? Um, everywhere except for Pittsburgh. But I think UNLV can absolutely win six games this year. Um, and their recruiting shows that they're moving in the right direction as well. Being able to attract a guy like Harrison Bailey to Las Vegas, like I said, a kid who grew up in Georgia, it says a lot about the kind of pool that Marcus Royo may have going forward on the transfer portal for former P5 guys looking for an opportunity. Uh, the last team that we're going to talk about today is 121st ranked Vanderbilt. Uh, Clark Lee's first season had bright moments, including dramatic wins over Colorado State and UConn and close calls, 21-20 loss to South Carolina. But the Commodores did finish 2-10. Two and ten. Two and a half is their DK win total. This is another team that we have at 3-9, and nine, so we're over the 2.5, but not with a ton of confidence. It's all about the SEC schedule here, Nick, and – I mean, what is their best shot at winning a game in the SEC? Who is it? Uh, and can they get an SEC win? Because otherwise they're going to be looking a lot of two and three win seasons here. Yeah, that I think is going to be what's the decider on, on if they're going to be able to beat this win total. Uh, can they upset? Because we know it's going to be an upset. They're a double-digit underdog in every SEC game, according to our projections. Um you know, who can they upset in the SEC to get that win? Because even though, you know, the Hawaii game is uh, a winnable game, I believe they're favored, uh, according to the odds makers, in that game now. I think it opened it as a pick em and and uh, the early money pushed it to Vanderbilt. Um, and then, you know, play an FCS opponent in week two. That's an opportunity for two wins right there. Uh, but, you know, let's keep in mind, they lost to an FCS team last year for you know, lost by 20 to uh, East Tennessee State last season. And and then the rest of the non-conference is very, you know, pretty difficult. Wake Forest is a team that is very, very consistently very difficult to beat. Um, team that won 11 games last year. And then Northern Illinois, uh, what, Mac champs, right? So if you're going to draw a uh, 
group of five team to play on the road <laughs> right before you open up SEC play against Alabama. So luck of the draw there, get to draw uh, the number one team in the country on the road to open SEC play cross division. Uh, it, it, you know, the schedule doesn't set up great, especially um, if they suffer a, a slip up in, in uh, week zero against Hawaii or against Elon uh, at home and in, in the home opener in week one. So it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. And the closest team in our ratings to Vanderbilt is Missouri, but they play Missouri on the road. They play them, uh, you know, after they play Georgia on the road, so back-to-back road games, pretty difficult setup there. Uh, they probably will be coming in on at least a three-game losing streak against Alabama, Ole Miss, and Georgia. So that that one in particular is is kind of tough. Their next best opportunity would be two weeks later, and and this sets up much better at home against South Carolina, a team that they lost to. Uh, in a game 21 to 20 last year, and they get a uh, you know a bye week ahead of time. So that right now looks like the best bet. So we'll see. But that South Carolina team is is much much improved at least roster wise. So it's it's going to be tricky. And you know, talking about personnel, Vanderbilt has has some uh, has some things to build upon. I think. Um, they've got two quarterbacks, two starting quarterbacks, and and you know you can make the argument. We've heard it a hundred times. Uh, if you've got two, you've got none. Uh, but you know Ken Seals has, I think, uh, flashed some quality uh, traits, especially you know arm strength, things like that. A little bit more of the the traditional pocket passer. Did get banged up a little bit last year. That opened the door for Mike Wright to really show what he could do. He'd been a you know basically a, a star in the spring game uh, the previous year after his true freshman year gets a little play in time, throws for a thousand yards, eight touchdowns actually had, you know, more touchdowns and fewer interceptions than seals added, you know, nearly 400 rushing yards. Um, he's got, I think the, the biggest upside, but just hasn't uh, at least yet developed as a passer, pretty inaccurate. Um, but, you know, if I were uh, choosing from from my vantage point, or if I'm rooting for a guy who's going to take control of this job, I, I think I'm rooting for Mike Wright. I think he just gives you a little bit, a uh, little bit more. And he's got a couple of you know pretty decent running backs to work with. Rocco Griffin's the leading uh, returning rusher, but Ramon Davis was injured in Week Three and really got off to a you know good start. Looked like uh, maybe the best player on offense at, at times in the first couple of weeks for Vanderbilt. They bring back Will Shepard, uh, but lose a, a couple of talented receivers, Chris Pierce out of eligibility and uh, uh, excuse me, Cam Johnson transferred to Arizona State. They also lost Amir uh, Abdur Rahman to Ball State. So, you know, lose a little bit of talent in the, the receiving core, haven't really hit the transfer portal on the offensive skill positions, they did bring in running back Cooper Lutz, who might you know make an impact, uh, maybe in the return game, maybe a little depth at running back. But you know, would would like to see a playmaker there. But similar to you know Rice and, and some other teams that we'll talk about, the academic standards make it a little tougher to bring in transfers. And, and you know, Vanderbilt's one of those teams that ends up losing more transfers, like uh, Tyler Steen, who was their best offensive lineman last year, and Alabama plucked. 
uh, him to help, you know, uh, kind of plug a hole that they've got on the offensive line. So um, they were able to get guys like Jacob Brammer, who's a starter on the offensive line at North Texas. He might uh, be able to fill that spot for Steen on the defensive side of the ball. They were able to land Kane Patterson, linebacker from Clemson, who was a four star coming out of high school. His brother signed with Vanderbilt this past year. So that's helpful. They brought in Jeremy Lucien, who we talked about, uh, one of the best uh, defensive backs that UConn's had the last couple of years. So bringing him in to help fill a hole left by, you know, Alan George, who, who is out of eligibility, Sean Jerkins, who's transferred out, um, Brandon Harris transferred to, to Wake Forest. They lost a couple of starters uh, in the secondary, Jerkins and Gabe Judy. Uh, Judy transferred to BYU. So, um, you know, Vanderbilt is, I think, at least as far as the teams that we've talked about today by far. I mean, they're the only Power 5 team. Um, they have the most talented roster by by a, a wide range um, on you know our show today. Yeah. But with a roster strength of, of 78 overall, 77th on offense, 82nd on defense, there are only 65 Power 5 teams. So we're, we're talking about you know, easily many a G five team over there. Yeah. yeah. Easily among the least talented uh group of five teams, or excuse me, power five teams. Uh and yeah, a dozen or more uh group of five teams with a more talented roster. You're playing a schedule that ranks eleventh in strength of schedule. And you know, throw that in the mix. The the wins are going to be few and and far between, uh, or the opportunities at least in conference play, it looks like to be super competitive. And there, you know, Clark Lee was a really, really good defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Um, he did have to replace his defensive coordinator, who was uh, plucked by Michigan. Um, so, you know, that's, you think, a decent side, even though they didn't put up great defensive numbers last year. You're losing. Uh, your play caller to Michigan, and, and you yourself are a pretty good defensive play caller. You would think that things are, are pretty, you know, there there's there's something to work with there on on that side of the ball, at least schematically, and and uh, you know, getting guys lined up and, and all that. But um, there's there's some questions. There's personnel questions. Just raw talent first and foremost, but also when you're losing, you know, some of your more talented players uh, to the transfer portal. It's going to be very, very difficult at, at Vanderbilt, not only this year, but but in the future. And, and I know that Lee is a, uh, you know, he's an alum. Uh, they seem like they're uh, everything I've, you know, heard, read recently. Uh, that that he's in it for the long haul, wants to help, you know, build a solid foundation and, and turn Vanderbilt into a winner. But it's going to be really, really difficult to improve on that two and ten record. It's going to be difficult to improve on the zero and eight. SEC record, and then you know, a thought that that comes to mind with Texas and Oklahoma coming into the league in a couple of years, and I'm sure Vanderbilt's going to be, uh, you know, the the thorn in, in Texas like Kansas is, but uh, the rest of the the rest of the league, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> but the rest of the league, I mean, it's it's going to be really really difficult because we're at a point in, in time where we're seeing at Vanderbilt some of the best players. Uh, some of the, the most experienced, the guys that you're trying to develop and, and turn into, you know, a, a competitive SEC roster, 
you lose those guys to the transfer portal and you're not really able to, to supplement them with guys of a, of a, you know, similar or better uh, talent level in part because of, you know, some of the, the outside of football things that are in place, it's going to be difficult. And the SEC itself is, you know, going to be even tougher in a couple of years than it is right now. So uh, I know we're mostly concerned about this year and, and will Vanderbilt get, um, you know, to that win total. Our projections have them finding an SEC win somewhere. Uh, but I have to say that that I'm I'm a, I'm doubtful. I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic, even though I really like Mike Wright, even though I've been impressed by Ramon Davis. Will Shepard's made some you know crazy catches I've seen um, and they, they bring back a fair amount of that, you know, too deep part of the the uh, the defense and, and things like that. But they're losing some of their better players just to, to you know natural uh, graduation and, and eligibility, but also the transfer portal. It's 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 really, really difficult. And Vanderbilt, the margin for error is so small already. The talent disadvantage is so big already. Um, man, I'm 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 fairly I'm fairly pessimistic on, on Vanderbilt this year, even though I like Lee and, and I like some of the things that they've done. I think it's just too hard right now. Yeah. E- even if you like this school, uh, Xavier, um, it- it's just hard to fathom them winning a bunch of games playing in the sec against all these top dogs. So uh, do you see, you know, room for improvement? I mean, but cause even if you're better, you can't really measure that for Vandy in wins and losses. Right. Yeah, the, the scary part for Vandy is that they didn't necessarily take advantage of when the rest of the SEC East was categorically just down, right? Like, they, they didn't take advantage of Tennessee's woe years. They didn't take advantage of South Carolina in the most recent, you know, time where they've been rather poor. They didn't even take advantage of Missouri's, you know, down years, you know, uh, up there either. And so now you kind of see the rest of the SEC East starting to kind of turn around. Shane Beamer brings in one heck of a transfer class. Uh, Tennessee's pumping money in, and it's starting to work up there. Florida obviously gets Napier, um, and they're also starting to, you know, starting to invest. Obviously, we know what's going on with Georgia, but you look around, and then you know, Missouri was able to get one of the best players in the country, and you know, the number one player in Missouri to stay at home. So you look around the rest of the SEC East, and you go, okay, Vanderbilt, where do you fit in? Right. Because the one thing James Franklin was able to do when he was there was capitalize on the fact that Georgia wasn't all that good. Uh, you know, Florida wasn't all that great. And, and he capitalized and had their best year uh, while he was there because of the fact that he saw around the SEC East that this is an opportunity here to, to, to pounce. There's not that opportunity right now. And so it makes it really fearful as a Vanderbilt, you know, as a Vanderbilt fan to see where they're going to be able to do it, where it's not non-conference. Right. So, they, you know, Hawaii, Elon. Northern Illinois. Those are really the three games you maybe, you know, circle as, an, as a Vanderbilt fan to watch this year. You know, maybe in the past you would say Wake Forest, but you've got Sam Hartman there who's you know, a Heisman dark horse. I just don't see where in the SEC, maybe, you know, at Missouri, maybe, you know, I don't know. Like, it's, it's really tough because even in the they got the, hardest, the harder teams from the West. You get Alabama and Ole Miss. Those aren't slouches, right? You didn't get the bottom feeders of the West either, which then, you know, lends yourself to having to play – tougher game. So I think Vanderbilt gets three wins maximum. I just don't see where you start to make any real headway to where you're like, yeah, this year's the year where, you know, Vanderbilt wins six games. Unless once again, the SEC East hits this catastrophic point where all but one team just haven't been able to figure it out. Like in the mid, you know, in the mid 2010s where, you know, it 
was really a crapshoot who was going to come out of that side of the conference. Uh, so I, I just don't know where Vanderbilt was able to make any real headway. Uh, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, I, I like I said, maybe at Missouri right before a bye week, you know, maybe, you know, you, you handle business against your in-state rival, doubt it. Maybe you go and beat, you know, maybe you beat South Carolina at home after the bye week. You know, maybe the bye week allows them to prepare a little bit more for a South Carolina team. That who knows at that point? Maybe they're reeling because you know um, Spencer Rowler is it hasn't been the guy, and now they don't know who their quarterback situation is. Like you, you have to create some pretty poor situations for everybody else for Vanderbilt to have a chance in some of these ball games, and that's just really where they're at right now. And unless they really hit the recruiting trail hard and and, and change that, they're always going to be a team that you're just like, all right, cool. In the perfect situation, Vanderbilt wins six games. And like that is too many times where you're talking about Vanderbilt having the having needed the perfect situation for them to do so, and and I just don't see where they would to pick up an SEC win this year. It's gonna be it's gonna be an uphill battle for all these teams, right? Uh, yep. And this is uh, we start low, we finish high. That's kind of where we go in these team previews. So look, we got through it. We got through. Um, you know, I want to uh, say real quick, if we didn't talk about Arch Manning, I mean, we were right there at two hours, and if I didn't squeeze in. Uh, sneak in an 11th team when I told you guys would only do 10 because you know we got to do it somewhere we got to do an extra team somewhere so yeah right. might as well start here so but that two uh, hours I think yeah we, I think yeah yeah Nick's the only guy bragging about a two-hour marker at 224 so uh, <laughs> I guarantee it's be shorter than that Xavier because I know he's got to get to the NBA draft that well uh, I mean the NBA three, draft only starts 30 minutes late anyway we knew yeah, somebody was off the table yeah, yeah. I, know, the, I know hey I'm proud I'm happy yeah, the, the yeah, NBA draft coughing fit, and uh, this is about an hour and a half uh, shorter than last year's. Yeah. Uh, so some uh, people yeah. will be disappointed. I, I have gotten some some very kind notes and people wondering where the previews were. Love the three hour previews, but I think I think this is a pretty good compromise. Yeah, when we have to uh, you know take shifts uh, to do these, it's probably not uh, the best in terms of keeping an audience. But I think this is a solid show. Got eleven teams done in just over two hours, and we will be back next week to do the next group and just moving on up from there. So if you guys have uh, any questions, please hit us up. Remember, we are all on Twitter at Bogman Sports for myself at CFB Winning Edge for Nick and at Xavier underscore Tristi CHE for Xavier. We will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.